0: Allegedly, I may be starting to feel something. This the fucking dude. The bottle's half gone. I hope so.
1: Alright, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody in between, welcome back to this very special edition of Bands, Beers, and Buzzwords, the show where you talk about your favorite album and I try to get you drunk doing so. My name is John Paglisotti and my guest this week is the one, the only, Joey Ochoa. Joey, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, John. How are you?
1: I'm doing excellent, man. I am so excited to talk about this album. Uh... Listeners, if you have heard the last, I guess, what, two albums that I've done, uh, you will see that we're on a roll with like some cool rock and roll music. But uh, I think this album has a leg up in terms of rock and roll, man. This is some real rock and roll. Joey, what are we talking about today?
0: Well, uh, John, today I thought it was um, probably a good idea for us to delve into a, an album that most of the young folk actually probably aren't familiar with. Today, we are going to talk about Def Leppard's second most popular album in terms of sales, a uh, little masterpiece, a, an unearthed masterpiece, again, for people our age, called Pyromania.
1: Pyro-fucking-mania. Okay. So, Joey, you said this one is second in terms of their sales. So, it, like, didn't sell that many records, right? How, 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 many, how many of these did they sell? Second most popular of theirs. How many did it sell?
0: Oh, it's certified diamond, John. (laughs) It went ten times platinum. They sold ten million of them in the U.S. Not sure how many else, and yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how many else worldwide, but probably did very well in the U.K. as well, (laughs) considering.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So if you guys want to talk about like real rock and roll, um, I think if you open the dictionary and look at rock and roll, there's a picture of Def Leppard in there. I would not be surprised. Uh, What do you think? (laughs)
0: Uh, Yeah, no, I I think, uh, I think Def Leppard would definitely be in there. And, you know, I, it's kind of a cop out that I introduced it as their second uh, most popular album in terms of sales, because, you know, by then they were kind of uh, writing a mess that they created, you know, uh, in, in regard to their album after Pyromania called Hysteria, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that later. But the thing about Pyromania is it started that whole craze. Like, uh, there were three big albums from um, 1983 that I think were instrumental in creating what we would think as the quintessential 80s heavy metal rock sound. And uh, uh, those three, in my opinion, uh, would be Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil, Quiet Riot's Metal Health, and Pyromania. And uh, if you look at how those three were composed and kind of the lasting impact following it is this man's humble opinion that pyro is kind of the crown jewel of those three in how eighties bands and even bands afterwards started to define their sound and thought about how they would compose songs.
1: I love it, man. I think that is a perfect intro here. Um, this is going to be a deep dive episode, so I hope you guys are ready to talk about some rock and roll, but before we dig in, uh, I want to do the music news segment, so let's cut to music news. news. Today in Yacht Rock, uh, actually yesterday in Yacht Rock, a five-time Grammy-winning uh, singer, songwriter, musician, uh, Michael McDonald was born in 1952. Uh, McDonald began as backing vocalist for Steely Dan, then fronted the Doobie Brothers before going solo in 1982. His distinctive voice, songwriting, and keyboard playing helped define Yacht Rock. Uh, Joey, he sounds like a contemporary then of Def Leppard, right? 1982, he went solo. That's pretty close to when this came out. Um who do you have in a fight? Joe Elliott or Michael McDonald? Oh,
0: I don't know. Cause like the thing is, it, uh, I don't know enough about Mike, you know, cause, um, I'd, I'd have to like, you know, kind of examine his upbringing, you know, and just see overall, like probably weigh them dim- dimensions wise, but you got to understand, you know, uh, the majority of leopard came from Sheffield, Yorkshire in the UK And, you know, those were all, you know, like steel mills and factories. Those are some tough sons of bitches out there. I agree
1: with you, man. Uh, And if you're familiar with Yacht Rock versus uh, hair metal, they have some similarities, I guess. But uh, look, I don't know anything about his upbringing either, but he does currently live in Santa Barbara, California.
0: So does he?
1: Yeah. Um, And he fronted the Doobie Brothers. I don't know. My money would be on Joe Elliott personally.
0: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And it's interesting, you know, for all we know, Joe could be just an absolute sweetheart. You know, he definitely seems like it in some of his most recent interviews. But, you know, it's all about appearance, you know, to be honest. Because one thing that I don't know if uh, you'd ever um, mentioned or brought up was uh, when we were talking about the British invasion, you know, we were talking about kind of the, uh, what's that word, the dichotomy or when it's the opposites or kind of like the... Uh, yeah,
1: like it's like, it's like two uh, two um, uh, contingents or two parts of one whole that are different.
0: Yeah. Right. We were talking about the dichotomy of the Stones and the Beatles.
1: Yeah. yeah, where, yeah, how, yeah.
0: where how all the Stones were, you know, these very ed- educated Londonites, I believe. You know, these educated Londoners, uh, you know, who portrayed themselves as bad boys. Whereas the Beatles were, you know a bunch of uh gruff ruffians from liverpool trying to pass off as the nice guys yeah kind of interesting how you got that uh yin yang there
1: that's funny it's it's like yeah it's kind of like how mr rogers was a navy seal sniper in vietnam who had 25 confirmed kills right
0: yeah or (laughs) or or how bob ross was a captain in the air force and realized that he needed more uh You know, he needed uh, more kindness in the world. That's
1: Okay, that one's actually real. The Mr. Rogers thing is fucking fake. That's real. If you guys didn't know, to listeners at home, Bob Ross was in the Air Force. That is true. Um, All right. I think that's enough music news. Uh, Joey, one more time. What album were we talking about here? Def Leppard's Pyromania. And before we talk about that, who are you and why should we trust
0: you? Well who I am basically just uh, your typical Southern Californian, you know, complains about when it's too cold, but also can't, can't stand when it's too hot. Um, But why you should trust me. Um, I've listened to this album, you know, either inadvertently or intentionally since I was, probably six or seven years old. And, um, if there were one album that I know for a fact that I could just drive the point home with, it would be this one. And it, uh, frankly, it's, this is my chance to kind of reacquaint again, the younger generations with this wonderful, uh, with this wonderful offering from a band that people associate with a completely different sound and uh remind people who might not know the their more extensive catalog that these guys were just absolute bruisers yeah you know long before um you know they kind of went down the rabbit hole of all the extra kind of um not down the rabbit hole, but you know, before they kind of took a a direction into a very, very polished yet pristine tone in their later albums, which was helped, um, which that particular sound was, uh, created by what they did on this very record that we're talking about today. Uh, They became kind of victims of their own success because by the time they released their, their, uh, second album or sorry, their, their next, uh, their next album, you know, they had kind of been overtaken by something that they had a huge hand in creating.
1: Right. And that, that'll be an interesting part of the story here as a deep dive. We are going to look at the context of it, the rise and fall, uh, I, and it's going to be sick. Joey, Joey's a humble guy. I'm going to, I'm going to force you to brag about yourself a little bit here, but no. you, you said that you're a typical Southern Californian. Uh, how many typical Southern Californians are like friends with like the guy who wrote the book about Def Leppard? <laughs> 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 tell us, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Oh, well, you know, it, it, I remember, uh, at least back in high school, uh, my, my, um, Frontman for uh, my band Cerebrus, uh, which will be dropping something in the next year or so. I'm hoping um, he would go absolutely bonkers, telling me about uh, every minute detail of uh, Eddie Van Halen's setup, or in his case, most definitely James Hetfield's setup. And um, my muse when it comes to you know, the, uh, godly town, uh, the godly tones of rock and roll was, would be the uh, sound of Steve Steeman Clark, the Riffmaster, rest in peace. And, um, you know, over the last five or six years, I've, you know, done my due diligence in trying to figure out, you know, how he got the majority of his sounds, you know, um, during, the, during his particular era in Def Leppard. And um, upon, upon uh, you know, kind of going down the rabbit hole, when I joined this um, Steve Clark fan page on Facebook, I uh, started getting comments from this gentleman named Mike Rogers. And um, I, I knew I had heard the name before somewhere, and I couldn't remember where. You know, it wouldn't pop up on Google easily, but... Um, from hearing from the moderator of the page, turned out that Mr. Mike Rogers or Mr. R as he was known was actually um the Leps Guitar Tech, one of the Leps guitar techs from nineteen eighty two to roughly nineteen eighty six. And uh he was there during, you know, their during their stra- uh stratospheric climb or Basically, during their uh, during their explosion,
1: right? Because th- this album was January '83, right? So he he would have shown up while this album was being recorded, I guess, uh, and then was there for the release of this, all the touring, subsequent touring, uh, like you said, strat- stratospheric, uh, you know,
0: ascension to basically the the rock pinnacle.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: You know, so I, that, I, I, that's I don't incredible. remember if this is true, but. Um, I remember hearing something about uh Pyromania was number two on the charts for about six months straight behind Thriller until uh Toto Four came to uh dethrone both of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um that's incredible, man. So yeah, when when I when I ask Joey who are you, why should we trust you? The guy has some serious connections and dedications to this music um and again i will make the disclaimer as i do in every episode or should be making in every episode this is for entertainment purposes only we're getting drunk uh but this episode in particular we have really done our homework and joe in particular is a uh wellspring of information on these guys again forgive uh small inaccuracies here and there do your own homework but uh this is gonna be a fun one man before we go any further I got to say, you've already hit two buzzwords.
0: Uh-oh. <laughs> Good lord.
1: Mention a band you used to be in and mention one of the big four metal bands. You mentioned James Hatfield. I'm going to give it to you.
0: You're going to do Metallica. Yeah. I'm
1: going to do Metallica for that. Um, <laughs> so that is two drinks. Oh boy. Uh, for anybody tuning in for the first time, I'll intro the game the buzzwords portion of bands, beers and buzzwords, uh, is a game here. I have a, what amounts to a bingo card, uh, with 20 buzzwords. These are words, phrases, tropes, uh, that I have written down here. Uh, anytime Joey says one of them, uh, he's going to have to drink and I am going to be trying to bait him into saying some of these. Um, as you can see, they come up naturally in conversation from time to time because I do, uh, tailor these to each guest in each band. Um, I'm going to cut real quick and let the people at home know what the buzzwords are. Joey's not going to know what they are until the very end. Uh, so you guys at home are going to get to hear me trying to maybe bait him into some of these. Uh, you'll be omniscient, but, uh, helpless in this situation. I encourage you to crack open a be- beverage of your choice and play along. Uh, because I'm going to be playing along. I've been sipping on this whiskey. This is pretty good whiskey, man.
0: Hey man, you know, like, uh, Jack Daniels is already a huge staple of, uh, Of rock life, Um, I just figured, you know, it's not every day I get to talk about one of my favorite bands and probably my favorite album. So I figured we'd bust out the good stuff. Uh, You know, Gentleman Jack goes down a lot more smooth than uh, the usual stuff. I know you're not supposed to mix it, but hey, we're consenting adults. We do whatever the fuck we want.
1: That's right, man. I've said on this podcast before, this is my podcast. I make the rules. We're going to fucking mix it. There's a picture. You said it's part of rock and roll lifestyle. There's a picture of a certain rock star uh, kicked back on the back legs of a chair backstage before a show at Madison Square Garden uh, with a vertical bottle of Jack Daniels. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: There's probably a handful of rock stars who have done that. <laughs> uh,
1: well, there's a lot of guys who've done it. But this is a famous picture. Black and white picture, dude, long hair, actually one of the inspirations for the band. Another Les Paul player. Madison Square Garden, probably about 1973. He's kicked back into back legs of a chair. Vertical bottle of
0: Jack Daniels. Well, if we're thinking 73, if I think of Leopard's influences, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Jimmy Page.
1: Mention Led Zeppelin, one of the buzzwords. Motherfucker. (laughs) All right, I'm going to cut right now so you guys can hear what the buzzwords are. Three, two, one, cut.
0: This week's buzzwords are mention poison. Use an onomatopoeia. Talk about your middle school music taste. Mention Boston. Mention a specific guitar. Mention a band you used to be in. Refer to an album made post-1990 as a record. Use the phrase ahead of its time. Recite lyrics. Mention Led Zeppelin. Say the word raw. Say the word drink. Mention a part of a drum kit. Tell a drinking story. Say the word warm. Mention a music video. Name a specific studio. Name a specific amplifier. Say the word vintage. And finally, mention one of the big four metal bands.
1: All right. Um, welcome back, folks. Those are the buzzwords for the week. Uh, Like I said, crack open a beverage of your choice uh, and play along responsibly.
0: Lord knows I I already have
1: (laughs) real quick too. one last housekeeping thing. Uh, If you are sitting there with us on your Spotify, on your Apple podcast, you need to open up your phone and hit that follow button, subscribe button, whatever it is. Uh, Follow this podcast. Um, Hit me up on Instagram. I am Delta dagger music. I post my music podcast updates, music memes, guitar build updates, It's kind of like my one and only place. Go there. um, Follow Redefining Records. This podcast is produced by Mr. Andrew Schultz of Redefining Records. Uh, So hit up Redefining Records, Instagram, redefiningrecords.com. He does a sister podcast to this one called Sounds for Thought, which is highly compelling. He's had some pretty big names on there. And uh, uh, he interviews Indian musicians about their own music. So uh, super interesting process. Hit him up. Joey, do you have any socials you want to shout out?
0: Uh. Well, um, Cerebrus will eventually have its own channel. I'm sure uh, we can bring it up later, maybe on a later podcast talking about a different album. I'm sorry we don't have anything to offer you yet, but we will have demos by the end of the year, hopefully. That, uh, that's that's Cerebrus, kind of like a mixture of you know cerebral and uh, Kerberos, you know, the uh, three headed dog of uh, Hades, Greco Roman mythology. There, so it it. Uh, We'll be putting out some stuff very soon. And you, you best believe that there'll be some Def Leopard influence in there.
1: Hell yeah. I love it. Um, let's jump in, dude. You mentioned uh, that this album was kind of a inflection point for the band in terms of uh, the starting point for a huge rise to fame. Why don't you give us a picture of like, what was this band doing before this album? What, what, what did music look like in the early 1980s? What did this band look like?
0: Well, um, that's that's kind of a tough one for me to pinpoint because um, you know Joe's mentioned before that uh, you know labels of how um, particular bands and, uh, and genres can be can often be misleading. Um, in at this point in their in their uh, history, Def Leppard was um, was considered one of the uh, one of the new wave of British heavy metal bands. Now, there were some fantastic bands that came out during this period. We're talking, you know, uh, uh, probably lesser-known bands such as Samson and Saxon, which have their own great music, too. You know, uh, if you ever get the chance to listen to uh, uh, the Power and the Glory album by Saxon, it's absolutely wonderful. And um, and Samson uh, is probably famous because uh, their lead singer, Bruce Dickinson ended up joining Iron Maiden uh, Uh, at some point, I believe in 81. But the big four, you know, you, you you know, we were talking about the big four of heavy metal thrash metal uh, earlier. The big four of new wave of British heavy metal would uh, is some pretty elite company. You got motorhead, Judas priest, Iron Maiden, and our lad's from Sheffield, the leopards.
1: That is quite the lineup, man. So, I mean, these guys are great. What's interesting is listening to, uh, like I'm not as familiar with all those bands, but for instance, I'm actually a huge fan of Maiden's first record, uh, their self-titled record, which that one, interesting enough, I mean, you can hear the underpinnings of metal and the beginnings of metal, but that one strikes me almost as, um, it has like a punk rock vibe. Do do you get that from that record?
0: I definitely do get a punk rock vibe from that record. It's very kind of punchy, you know, kind of, kind of growly very uh for for lack of a better term very um unpolished mm-hmm. and it's actually interesting because you know I always hold um Iron Maiden and Def Leppard in a very similar regard despite uh despite what people might classify them as today because even though um you know Maiden predates Leopard by a handful of years with the formation of their band they both of their debut albums were released in
1: 1980
0: oh wow and um probably because lack of a budget at the current time. Uh, Both of their albums are very, both of those debut albums are, I wouldn't say, you know, underwhelming in a musical sense because some of their best songs were on those albums, but the product, the production could definitely be found wanting. Um, And both of them grew into their own a little more with their second album. I, I feel bad because I don't remember the name of the producers of either of those albums, but as we well know by the time that Maiden settled on Martin Birch, you know, they started hitting their upswing and gaining their their glory as, you know, not only one of the new uh, new wave of British heavy metal uh, gods, but probably, you know, the found, one of the founding fathers also of power metal. Sure. Um sorry, uh and uh Def Leppard on the other hand, would uh, would um, try to go in. I wouldn't say a more commercial direction, but they'd be uh, they'd tr- take a particular route with their music by um, kind of uh, selling their soul to a devil for detail, for <laughs> for lack of a better term.
1: We'll jump into him in a second. I wanna I wanna ask you something just to give a little more context. You mentioned, for instance, like. Uh, lack of budget, the boys from Sheffield, you you noted uh, that there were some rough and tumble dudes when we joked about uh, Mr. Michael McDonald. Uh, we've mentioned Joe's name, Steve's name. Why don't you introduce the band to us? Like, Who is Def Leppard? Where did they come from? Who are these guys? What, what are their names? Uh, introduce the band for us.
0: Alrighty, so uh, do you want the iteration at the time of this album?
1: Yeah, however you want to do it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do the time of this album.
0: Alright, so um, basically, these gents were uh, you know a, a band from Sheffield that uh, had briefly reformed under the name Atomic Mass in 1977. Mm-hmm. and all these lads, you know, super young um, uh, at the time, um, you know, um, in the UK, they finished school a little earlier than they do here. so these these guys had already been uh, working in the um, working in the, uh, fabrication factories for a handful of years already. You know, some of them had, um, you know, internships for, uh, as operators of like the heavy, heavy machinery. And basically it was kind of your lot in life. If you came from one of these, um, one of these, uh, kind of industrial centers of the UK that, you know, you either worked in the factories or you found something, something very, very convincing to get you out of there.
1: They were literally working with heavy metal.
0: They literally were working <laughs> with heavy metal. And, uh, and you know, Sheffield was, is definitely one of the industrial hubs. Another industrial hub was Birmingham. Mm. And, um, of course, you probably know of the other, of the heavy metal uh, band that came out of there. A little uh, four-piece called Black Sabbath. Oh, baby.
1: Well, Tony Iommi, that's right. Tony Iommi cut his, uh, that's how he lost his finger. Is he? It was the day, uh, his very last day. He had put in his two weeks, and it was his very last day at the factory. He was working at a fucking factory. Uh, and uh, Sabbath had finally made it big enough that he put in his two weeks. And on his last day, on the you know 14th day, a uh, big 30-ton press or whatever came down and cut off half his fucking finger. And that's how Tony Iommi lost his finger. That's funny. I completely forgot about that until yeah. he just brought it up. he didn't want yeah.
0: to go that day. He said, I'm just not going to show up. And his mom made him go. Oh, son of a gun, man. Like, uh, I mean, you know, it's all hearsay about how he feels about that. But, you know, I I would definitely harbor a little bit of salt. Not a lot, but a little. Because, you know, who knows uh, how people would think of Sabbath without, you know, that prosthetic finger pushing down those frets in that particular way. Because, you know, uh, you and I are are both... uh, uh guitarists who are familiar with the concept of how every little uh every little intricacy can affect your tone mm-hmm. who knows what Sabbath would have sounded like if he hadn't done that
1: that's true and and uh, you know speaking to the working class roots of these guys you know Tony iomi didn't go to the top plastic surgery in the world to get a brand new finger he melted down uh some sort of plastic bottles or something he melted them into the shape of a finger and wrapped it in leather and that way he made his own prosthetic like Son of a bitch, man. I I don't know, man. I there's some about you know Tony Iommi and Django Reinhardt and shit. Uh, you know, I, I broke my finger in high school and didn't play guitar for months. And then after learning about Tony Iommi and Django Reinhardt, I feel like a total pussy. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I mean,
0: I mean, you know, I went through something kind of similar when I was uh, when I was very young. I um, hyperextended or broke. We're we're still not sure which um, my pinky finger on my fretting hand and. Um, And uh, I don't think the tendon's ever healed properly because uh, my pinky is almost entirely useless when I'm fretting. Uh, Folks, I wish I could show you right now what I'm about to do, but I'm going to show John (laughs) something.
1: Oh, dear God.
0: Oh, Notice how the ring finger doesn't move?
1: Jesus. H. That. Okay. I don't know. Okay. I... Okay, Joey just moved his pinky finger in a way that's like really fucked up. I don't even know how to describe this to you, but there is something wrong with his pinky finger. He is, if you want to know who he is and why you should trust him, is that he has like a really fucked up finger and he's still up here playing guitar and ripping it and just shredding it. Okay. Long,
0: long story short, I love me some power chords rather than uh, the more intricate solos. Let's, let's just put it that way. Okay. Def Leppard, they are these working class dudes
1: from Sheffield. They're on the cutting edge of metal, but in their first, you know, handful of forays here, it's, uh, it's not quite a polished sound, right?
0: Right. And, uh, you know, people responded with, uh, with, um, with their, you know, with their time and money, you know, uh, the, the debut album, um, I think sold maybe a hundred thousand units, um, at least at the time of the release of, of pyro. And um, for their second album, uh, uh, you know, they uh, enlisted the help of a very famous um, producer who is already turning the fortunes of some of some very famous bands who were starting to hit their stride.
1: Yeah. Who? OK, who is this guy? Let's we've introduced Leopard. Let's introduce this major player.
0: Oh, we didn't bring up the, their names and we didn't bring up the lineup yet.
1: Send it real quick.
0: Okay, <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know. You're good.
1: No, send it real quick. In, in,
0: in, you know, in the words of uh, one of the Zeppelin songs off of Zeppelin Two, "You Bring It On Home." Bring it on home, baby. There you go. Who? Who are Def Leppard? All righty. So, you got the main cheerleader. You know, the man, the myth, the legend. You have, you know, the man who wails like he is being prodded with a red hot poker. That's the. Uh, the king of mullets himself, Mr. Joe Elliott. Yes. And Who's G-
1: Joe Elliott? What does he do?
0: Joe is the lead vocalist for yes. Leopard and was the brunt of their producer's wrath when, in the uh, formation of this heavy metal masterpiece.
1: As always, and as it should be. Okay, here's a little question for you. Pop quiz. How many lead singers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Beats me. One, he holds it up, and the whole world revolves around him. Oof. (laughs) Okay, I get to say that because I'm a lead singer now. Okay, Joe Elliott, the dude fucking shreds. I love Joe Elliott. I love his vocal delivery. He hits some insane notes. Mutt put him through the fucking ringer, but got some goddamn results out of the guy, and I respect the hell out of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Who else is Duff Leppard?
0: Alrighty. Well, Um, if we're talking from the, the original lineup from 77, there were only two people in the band who made it all the way through to present day. Okay. And one of those is the other guy, the, uh, man with the thunder in his fingers, Mr. Rick Savage. Yes, also, sir. You know, goes by Sav for short. Cause there's two Ricks in the band.
1: Yeah. Rick Savage on the bass guitar, bringing in the low end.
0: Yeah, just, just, just abusing those uh, Hammer explorers to great effect.
1: Yeah, man. He gets some fat tones on this record, too. Who's the other member that was like a founding member?
0: Well, those were the only two that were like all the way through.
1: Oh, it was Joe and... Okay, I yeah, gotcha, they Yeah, they, gotcha. they were around during I the see.
0: Atomic Mass days in 77.
1: Okay, it was Joe and, and Rick Savage. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Sav. So, those are the two original members. Who else do we have?
0: All righty. Well... Um, he won't, uh, pop up very much after this, but he's worth talking about. Uh, one of the original lead guitarists, the, uh, the dual lead guitarist, I, I should, say, mm-hmm. should say, because, uh, oddly enough, Leopard never categorized their two guitarists as a lead and a rhythm. They basically called each other dual leads and would have points where they would trade off
1: fucking beautiful, similar to like Maiden.
0: Absolutely. You yeah. know, there were, there were times when, uh, when, you know, Dave would just, uh, just, uh, grab life by the horns and just rip it. And then there were times when Adrian would just go, Hey, don't forget about me. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't sleep on me.
1: So this is an interesting one. Cause we start this story with this guy, but unfortunately we don't finish it with him. Who is this?
0: That is Pete Willis. Yeah. And Pete was a member of atomic mass. Um, um, who was in the uh who was in the market for a new guitarist and new vocalist to keep his band going you know and uh originally uh he auditioned Joe as uh um as the guitarist cuz Joe actually is a is a is a darn good guitarist he actually would uh sometimes get one of those little um what do you call them those those headless uh kind of Small, oh, the
1: Steinberger. Yeah,
0: kind of. Yeah, the the V version of that Steinberger. Oh shit! And he would he would actually play some of the uh, rhythms when um when it would be uh Phil and Steve kind of uh going off doing their thing. And he'll still pull out an acoustic when they do acoustic parts of their set to this day. Um, yeah. I I, I uh, Joe originally was auditioned as a guitarist, and the way that Joe actually joined Atomic Mass slash Def Leppard was uh, he missed a bus on the way from work today and ran into Pete on the way walking (laughs) back home.
1: No way. Chance meeting. But uh, that's how it goes oftentimes in rock and roll are these strange chance meetings. I think we have another story of you personally with a weird chance meeting. Uh, We'll touch on that later. So we got Joe. We got Rick. We got Mr. Pete Willis. uh, Who else have we got? There's another member of the band that Not quite in the same way as Pete, but he starts the story with us. He's kind of not involved, but he's kind of still there at the end. You know what I'm talking about? Man who brings the rhythm. The poor man was left out of out of a lot
0: of this. Oh, yes. I believe you're talking about one of the percussionists. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, we are talking about the Thunder God himself. Mr. Rick Allen. The, the, man Rick. Who would, the man who would not give up the Rick moniker, which relegated Mr. Savage to Sav. And I'm glad he didn't, man. He had to give up a lot of shit for this record. I'm glad he at least
1: got to keep Rick.
0: Yes. Yes. That's, you know, you, you celebrate your wins however you can get him. That's for yeah.
1: sure. Good for him, man. He seemed like a good sport about the whole thing. We'll touch on maybe what we mean by that later. But Rick Sav- or, Sorry, Rick- Allen. Rick Allen. Yes, sir. Rick Allen, drummer for Def Leppard.
0: Yes, one of, the man, one of the men who could set a Ludwig kit on fire, much like Bonzo.
1: Mr. Bonzo. May God rest his soul. Speaking of which, uh, may God rest his soul. There's another member of the band. Yes. We need his Zadron.
0: Yes. Uh, my personal muse, I've already brought him up before, Mr. Stephen Maynard Clark. Now... Um, it's kind of hard to uh, quantify the impact that this gentleman had on a myriad of music to come after. And um, I don't believe he quite gets a fair shake nowadays because um, it's been uh, about 30 years and a month, just over a month since his passing. And... um, I don't, I don't believe that, uh, people quite understand, uh, just the, the edge that he brought to this, to this band. Now, Steve was the original, um, was the original dual lead with Mr. Pete Willis. And it took Steve a little while to join the band. He was originally in another band called Electric Chicken. Huh. And, um... Steve had actually reached out. Sorry, Pete reached out to Steve to join Def Leopard, and Pete's and Steve said he would be interested uh, in joining them. But uh, I don't know um, what happened per se, but that didn't quite materialize in the way that uh, in the way that uh, they had hoped. Um, fast forward, I think a handful of months. Pete and Joe bump into Steve at a Judas priest concert <laughs> and they extend the, uh, invitation. Once again, Steve comes to their rehearsal spot. And, uh, as Joe tells it played the entirety of Freebird without accompaniment. That was his tryout. <laughs> and, uh, he was a foundational column of, uh, leopards writing and by writing i mean not just their riffs but their lyrics uh from his joining of of the band in 78 uh up until his passing and even past his passing because um one of the uh, albums released after his passing still had a still had his fingerprints all over it
1: yeah Yeah. So this is something we'll jump into because the recording process from this out for this album took a toll on the band and it took a toll on different members in different ways. And they wound up having to replace a member, somewhat two members, if you kind of think about it, but mm, weird. So let's jump into that. I feel like for now, that's the lineup we have going into this album, right? Um, So let's. Right, that's everybody. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's everybody going into the recording of this album. As as you've heard us touch on, this changes actually during the recording of this album, uh, which is a unique story because this album was not recorded, uh, you know, in fucking Joe's living room with a couple mics and a guy. You know, no, these guys went to some legit studios. And they enlisted the help of a producer who. Uh, <laughs> He seems like kind of a son of a bitch, but he gets some fucking results. And and the band was you know tempered by the heat of this fucking fire of recording this album. So let's introduce this character, right? We've introduced the band. We've referred to this guy a couple times.
0: Who is this fucking producer? John, the gentleman we are referring to is known as Robert John Mutt Lange, a... South African man with an incredibly acute ear, and for some reason, the Midas touch. Because everything he would lay his hands on would eventually turn to gold, and in some cases, platinum,
1: and fucking diamond and shit. And because here, here's the thing, Def Leopard. Look, if you produced a couple Def Leopard records, and that's all you produced, you would be considered a legend in the industry. But Mutt Lange didn't just produce fucking Def Leppard records. What's just the, uh, what's the, what's his greatest hits of other
0: artists? Uh, are we talking everybody or rock contemporaries? Everybody. All right. Well, let's see. Uh, might not be familiar with the Boomtown Rats, right?
1: No, I saw that on there. I have no fucking idea who those guys
0: are. Yeah, um. To be honest, neither do I. Yeah, <laughs> but, whatever. But um, let's see. Here, here's ones that you might start uh, recognizing. Uh, I'm sure you might have heard of Foreigner.
1: I've uh, heard of Foreigner.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> Foreigner Four was uh, was one of his uh, one of his little um, masterpieces. little
1: ditties. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> you
0: know. um, I uh, there's 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 one other band, the, the Australian band. Um, their their name escapes me. Can can you help me with some uh, Australian bands? It's not Midnight Oil. It's, uh, not, it's, it's not midnight. It's not Men at Work. Um,
1: I was gonna say. Um, uh, ah, it's it's missing something it's about missed. electrical. I know, right? It's like the uh, the sixty cycle hum or something like that. Or they're called the. Oh wait, I remember it. ACDC.
0: Yeah, that's right. Mutt did a handful of their records, Did Mutt too. produce
1: ACDC?
0: Kay. Yeah, if, if memory serves, I think he did at least Highway to Hell, <laughs> Back in Black, and For Those About to Rock. Okay. All right.
1: All right. So those are some pretty big names. But the thing with Mutt Lang is, you know, he could only do, you know, power chord rock and roll bands. And, you know, that's all he could do. He couldn't produce anything other than that. Because, you know, oh, if you look I at if you look at surprised the it, <laughs> Oh, would I? Uh, because I'm, lo- I'm you know, if you look at the rest of his artists, I see other three chord rock bands such as Celine Dion. <laughs> <laughs> Britney Spears. Britney Spears. Are you fucking kidding? Maroon five. OK, I'm still trying to have a Maroon five episode on this show. I'm still trying. Okay. You're not getting
0: it from me, though.
1: <laughs> not from you. But here's the thing, man. I will fucking fight and die upon the hill that Songs About Jane by Maroon Five is a goddamn masterpiece of a fucking album. I, have, I, I feel like he probably didn't produce that one. That was their first album. I don't think he produced that one. But Maroon fucking Five, Celine Dion, uh, Muse, fucking, too. He did Muse. Of, he did, one, did, one, did do one, did Muse. Muse record, that's right. Too. Muse. Um, fucking A. And Shania Twain.
0: Yeah, his, his ex-wife,
1: his ex-wife. That's right.
0: Yeah. Squeezed thirty million records out of her, didn't, she? didn't he?
1: Uh, nah, he did.
0: Uh, that's triple diamond for people playing at home.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Mutt Lang, he's not just some fucking guy. Like this guy, he literally, like you said, he has the mightest touch. Everything he touches turned to fucking gold, aka triple platinum, triple diamond, triple goddamn everything. Uh so fucking um you know the boys from Sheffield, they have this fucking raw, down and dirty tone. It's cool as fuck. It gets people going. People fucking love it. They're great. Uh Joey showed me some of their earlier stuff. And it's great, man. It fucking kicks ass. Uh, but it is not quite mm, it's not triple platinum material. Triple yeah. diamond material. I mean
0: I mean Mutt got a hold of them for uh their 1981 album, High and Dry. Which I believe he was probably producing around the same time that he was getting ready to do for those about to rock. Yeah. Um. Uh. Funny story about for those about to rock later when we start talking about his meticulous nature. Um. So he did a great job with um, with uh, high and dry. I believe it went gold. I think it sold about five hundred thousand copies. I'm sure. I'm sure it was more. It's definitely more now. But high and dry. You know, many people who will, um, I wouldn't say carelessly, but kind of baselessly class Leopard solely as a new wave of British heavy metal band, will consider that their pinnacle and the end of their interest. And um, it's a shame for people to be that closed-minded because, I mean, High and Dry is a fantastic record. You You know, it's one of those things where I can just listen all the way through and I'll be like, I wish it was like another twenty minutes longer. You know, like it it's just amazing. It 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 attacks you, it reaches out and just hooks you in for the entire uh I'm not sure what the full the full runtime used to be. I think it was about forty two minutes in sure. change. Um, but uh, you know, it, it it has you hooked. You know, the the way the um the way that uh Mutt was able to to squeeze the uh the sound out of not only, uh, Pete and, uh, and Steve, but the way that he was actually able to get Joe to ascend to the, to the, uh, the higher registers that we know him for. If you listen to, uh, Leopard's debut album on through the night, um, you know, Joe, wasn't that comfortable with, uh, kind of reaching into those higher, um, those higher screams yet. You know, it's, it, uh, kind of sounded more like he was just, uh, you know, staying comfortably in his zone, which, you know, that sound of Joe, we are still quite familiar with. But when he was able to, you know, break into those upper echelons of his range, it, uh, you know, it, it kind of helped the band come into its own in a way, you know, very similar to, uh, you know, Pantera having a very, um, very s- noticeable change of sound when they brought in Phil Anselmo.
1: All right, Welcome back So we've introduced the band We know Def Leppard We've introduced Robert, John, Mutt, Lange We have all the major players here What's going on With Pyromania man L- Lange, Mutt Lang comes to them With a choice He says I did your last album And it was great And we did it in this certain way But For this next album I have a proposition for you he tells them, look, we can produce the last album how we did the last album. We can produce this album, rather, how we did the last album. And I'm going to, you know, touch it up here and there. And you guys will sound great. It'll be a repeat of your last album. Or you're going to fucking go to the boot camp of Mutt Lang. You're going to fucking hate me by the end of this. But you're going to have the greatest motherfucking album ever made. And they decide to go with option two. Is that correct?
0: Uh, yeah, they, 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 they go for broke.
1: And the recording process of pyromania, I'm trying to remember I, I don't remember the exact time frames, but their first couple albums were recorded uh you know in a matter of weeks
0: yeah, well, um well uh, I remember the <clears throat> debut I, I, I think it was just over a month mm. you know, and high and dry, you know, which was a mutt offering and he did hold hold them to a particular standard, you know took. Three months, which they felt was an eternity. And I believe in, um... And I believe in comparison, the totality of Pyromania took something around nine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, if, if I remember correctly, three months in, they didn't have a single completed song. In fact, I feel like six months in, they didn't have a single completed song. It didn't come together until the very end, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it was at a point where, um forgot if they're Vertigo or Mercury I know here it's Mercury but um, yeah 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 but uh, over there it might have been Vertigo just bashing down their doors trying to figure out where the new record was and all Peter Mensch their uh, manager at the time could offer them were these snippets of the of these songs and um, you know the uh, record execs were just trying to yank them out of their hands and uh, they said hey can I just have to wait yeah. but but know what you're getting into when uh when it finally drops.
1: Yeah. So part of this thing is is the boys were used to playing with um Rick Allen, their drummer. And to an extent, uh you know the way it was done before is you would sit down with your drummer and you would live track at least some part of the song and then overdub other parts. It, we already mentioned Zeppelin. You go back and you listen to some, uh, you know, Bonham's drum parts, and he's speeding up and slowing down the tempo, and they're just playing along to Bonham, um, and then they overdub over that. This one they did something a little different. Uh, they tried to make it a little more perfect, and this was a mutt idea, not the band's idea. What what was the rhythm section like on this album?
0: Oh, it must have driven Rick nuts. Now that I think about it, well, I bet every time I think about it, it, it I think that it drives Rick nuts because it would drive me nuts. So basically, you know, even though, uh, this record was crafted to unseat the very, uh, idea of this music that Mutt was, um, subscribing to in a way, um, Mutt took a, um, page out of new waves book and decided to use, uh, you know, electronic drums, To ensure that, you know, everything was perfectly in time and everything was basically to his specifications, which, you know, with how hypersensitive Mutt's ears were, um, he could tell, you know, if drummers were, uh, were, um, what's the term? Like leading or following? Yeah. 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 He, He could tell if they were a little bit off tempo and uh the way in Mutt's mind to um, rectify that just go electronic cuz it's going to hit in the right spots every time that at that particular point in the you know late 70s early 80s you know rock was you know kind of in limbo for lack of a better term because you know um, you, you started getting all a lot more of this synth pop which uh um, was probably made I wouldn't say more okay, but uh, popularized after, you know, kind of disco started sweeping through, um, you know, just something to be played on the dance floor. And on the other side, you know, rock was uh, kind of in an, uh, a weird spot because you had the, um, you know, the the really heavy bands, um, like, uh, you know, say Sabbath, and then the, really punchy ones with attack, like the new wave of British heavy metal bands. And then you also had, um, punk bands, you know, who, uh, you know, are, are um, just, uh, you know, playing their own style, you know, um, do, doing, doing their own thing. And the problem was, is, uh, all those heavy metal bands weren't really able to, um, kind of break in, to uh, to the um. To to the I guess the popular charts, you know, like uh, there wasn't really a defining uh, record that could get radio play at the time, because all the stuff that most people can think of from that era was you know kind of like iconic heavy metal stuff that we could think of today, like maybe British Steel, Blizzard of Oz. You know, though that wasn't popular. You know, that was all the kids, you know, wearing the battle jackets, you know, yeah. kind of with their own, like, kind of cult movement, nearly. And um, I think, uh, and on the uh, American side, you know, the bigger market, you know, you, they were just, uh, you know, kind of playing reruns of, uh, of Boston. Not that there is anything wrong with that.
1: Brother, mention Boston is one of the buzzwords.
0: Oh, no. All here we go. Cheers.
1: Cheers. Here's what's up. So we've introduced Lang. We've talked about his recording process. We've talked about the boys of Death Leopard. De- Death Leopard, sorry. Um, we know Matt Langa is a motherfucker. He's pushing these boys to their limit. They're these working boys from fucking Sheffield. Here comes the album, man. It's time to stop pussing footing around. It's time to talk about the goddamn record. Here we come. Pyromania. The first song is called Rock Rock Till You you Drop. Tell me about this song. Introduce me to this song. I've never heard this album before. What does this album have in store for me?
0: All right. So, you know, I I would say that this is probably, you know, um, I guess a trope for... Most rock bands, but you want a strong, strong showing as your first song to, to you know, to draw people in and to hook. That's you correct. Know? And, uh, you know, if you listen to the first song on Leopard's first five albums, you'll hear that, you know, that it's one of their best songs because they're getting ready to just reel you in and, um, you know, you're in for a ride. And especially for the first four, because, you know, they were still out on uh, licorice pizza or uh, vinyl, as (laughs) most people call it nowadays. Um, Sorry, you know, licorice pizza. But um, it's, you know, you're you're uh, you don't want to, you know, keep on placing the needle different places. You know, you you want something that you can just run straight through. Yeah. You know, and the first song is always a good indicator of that. Now the crazy thing and the thing that probably would start to tick off most of the leopard puritans was uh the you know the first part of that um of of that intro you know you hear you you hear you know the signature leopard guitar sound sounds a little bit different but you know still very much tone, tonally similar but what you also hear is uh accompanying synthesizers yes your synth organ and the, yeah, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, what what are we getting into here? What 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 has Mutt done with these lads? And uh, slowly but surely through the course of the album, you realize you've done a lot. He's done a lot, and you know you can kind of hear that it's stuck in the early '80s, but it is it is integral to how that album comes across. You cannot imagine the songs without them in certain spots.
1: It is. This is a perfect album opener, in my opinion. Um, I drew parallels with uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, In the Flesh. I don't know if you went through that phase of like marathoning the wall over and over again, but I certainly did. And uh, this one, the opening of this one reminds me of In the Flesh, Pink Floyd, uh, it's the start of the show. It's the start of the kind of uh, concept album in a sense. And I certainly appreciate that. I think they do a really good job of, um, it might be a wink to Pink Floyd. Like the thing is, is there, there are a lot of accusations of song stealing and this and that. Hmm. And I I don't fucking believe that. I think it was, they were giving a wink to other bands that were insanely good. And uh you know, they can take here and there from each other and, and uh, have a good time with it. And I think that this song reminds me so much of the opening of The Wall, which is such a nod to, like, another great English band. This one in particular has a little more of that cinematic kind of epic vibe to it that's, like, really suited to being the opening song with the fat synthesizer. And then they drop into the coolest fuck guitar riff.
0: Yeah, just just an absolute crusher of a riff um um basically um you know it's uh it's based off the um you know the a chord which mm-hmm. i mean as you know the a chord is just you know one of the keystones of, of the rock sound and so you know and especially when it's uh driven that the way that these gents had had it set up you know and the way that uh mutt was kind of able to tame all the extra um frills on it on the side You know, it just, it it hits you like a ton of bricks. It really does, you know, and, and you hear that, you know, it's still kind of the same, but you do hear something a little different in there and it's very hard to pick out.
1: The soundstage is greater on this one than stuff we've maybe heard before. Uh, It's the soundstage is greater, but it also doesn't detract. It's not like, oh, they went to a totally different place. I'm not following these guys anymore. It's like the existing fans are with it. Uh, but it could maybe engage new fans too. I love it. Absolutely,
0: yeah. I mean, it was the you know they were trying to do that um, that cross genre breakthrough. You know that uh, mutt knew would work, and uh, you know that that's how um, that's how this genre has grown through the years. I mean, you know, basically ro- first wave rock and roll. You know, like the fifties through fifty nine. You know, that was basically rhythm and blues bleeding into pop yeah you know that that was basically uh how rock and roll got its start
1: and it's cool as fuck to me uh this is an album uh, we'll touch on it later but this is cool as fuck to me that this is an album where rock and rollers sing about rock and roll like that's kind of a trope that we don't see anymore um also on this album joe delivers the line about like women to the left of me women to the right which you hear on tnt acdc this is a touchstone between Mutt. You know, this is a Mutt bridge here. It's like, I wonder if Mutt contributed that line or this or that. There are a number of Uh, moments.
0: Many times they've uh, referred to Mutt as the sixth leopard. Yeah, which
1: which uh, fucking more power to him. Like, uh, that's no No, problem. He's he's definitely
0: polished their songs. Like, you know, he would come in and, you know, tell Steve and Joe, the principal lyric writers, what was good and what was what could it be improved upon? And he probably didn't say what could be approved upon as what could, what could be approved upon.
1: Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. He <laughs> didn't put it that lightly. Um, I'm going to take a shot in the dark here. Oh okay. uh, yeah. the viewers don't know this, but I've, uh, compiled a list of uh, every song on this record has a guitar solo on it. And five of them are Steve Clark and five of them are Phil Collins. We haven't introduced Phil Collins. We actually, haven't
0: introduced yet. Phil yet.
1: Um, Should we do that right now?
0: Yeah. uh So
1: Mutt, obviously, so we've talked about Mutt. It uh, was an exacting, uh, very hardcore producer. Um, He imposed some very, uh, you know, kind of strict rules upon the band. Uh, He knew the recipe for success. And he was willing to strictly enforce that upon a band you know a lot of bands uh yeah, they're crazy guys they're musicians they like to drink and and get crazy and shit and um, him as a producer he knows what sells at a fucking triple platinum level you know what I mean it's this high level thing and so he imposes certain rules upon the band it taxes them the recording process for this album was not easy and some things happened to the lineup of the band. Like, it taxed the band. Joey, what happened to the band? The lineup of the band changed during the recording of this record because of the taxes imposed. Oh, absolutely. I mean,
0: as a kind of a prelude, you know, like, uh, um, Joe had to do so many takes that, you know, he basically, and with the nature of how he was singing, he'd be shouting himself hoarse. And he remembers this one time where, you know, just in a just in an absolute state because of how Mutt jumped on him uh he went into a neighboring studio and he heard David Coverdale of White Snake nail a song in one take <laughs> and uh you know just Dave's just absolutely pitch perfect you know uh if you want uh, a good uh you know version of you know of what another gnarly sweet rock song is from kind of the same aesthetic that pyromania created you know, please check out uh, "Here I Go Again" by White Snake, as well as "Still of the Night." Mm. Uh, those are those are some lovely songs by a singer uh, as good as Joe. And I really have to give David a lot of credit because I think he knew, in a way, you know, the kind of pressure that Joe was under. And uh, when you know Joe kind of stumbled into the studio and saw that. Um, You know, Dave did basically what, you know, rockers do with uh, other rockers that they respect, you know. They just get them hammered, you know. Uh, Dave just kept on apparently pouring him brandy after brandy after brandy. And uh, Joe walks away in a drunk stupor, sleeps it off, and then he's uh, ready the next day to to combat Mutt again. There you go. And, uh, you know, and if we're talking about the drum machine, obviously Rick was losing patience with uh, Mutt about this as well because, you know, rick basically had zero say in how the drum tracks were created and i i believe he got frustrated to the point where you know he just hucked a drumstick at the wall and just you know just buried it in the installation you know? i would
1: too because here's the thing that's fucked up about mutt's drum composition is like a lot of the fills are like insanely good like it's not like Mutt replaced him with a bullshit, like shitty version. He actually put some great drum riffs in there.
0: Absolutely, and uh, and even though it sounds a little dated now, uh, the way that he dialed in that kit is is pretty fantastic. You know that 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 kick hits you in a, in a great way. The um, the toms are I don't know they're kind of like middle road, but. Um, but, you know, the, the, the bread and butter when you think of uh, kind of like Mutt Lang albums is the snare sound. You know, even though it has, you know, that uh, digital tracer at the end, it's a very distinct, beautiful snare sound. And, you know, it, not to, you know, keep on, uh, uh, you know, beating a dead horse, but uh, according, to, uh, according to myth... Um, Mutt switched something like five or six different studios with ACDC when they were recording uh, for those about to rock because he was trying to find the perfect snare sound for Phil's kit. Which studio that.
1: Which studio did they wind up in? Uh,
0: I couldn't tell you. Because what,
1: what studio did Def Leppard record in?
0: Oh, um, well, let's see. I think they did High and Dry in uh, in one of the ones in downtown London. But, uh, I believe, uh, I believe Pyro was, uh, Whistler's studio.
1: Okay, I'm gonna stop you. So name a specific part of the drum kit, tell a drinking story, and name a specific studio are all buzzwords.
0: That's a triple fucking whammy there.
1: That is a hat trick, baby. Oh, laugh
0: at my pain, ladies and gents. (laughs) Welcome back.
1: Smut so Lang obviously imposed a very um, rigorous recording schedule on these guys. He demanded a lot out of this band, and at least one member of the band couldn't quite handle it and had to be replaced at one point. What? Tell us about this.
0: All right. So, um,. So I talked about the strife, or you know, the the struggle of Joe and of Rick, but um, I think one of the bigger, well, the the biggest uh, struggle had to be, you know, the the very um, rigorous recording schedules for the guitarists. You know, Steve and Pete were. Uh, we're both, um, you know, fans of of the bottle, and uh, you know they they uh, they'd enjoy themselves after a hard day's work. Um, I think the uh, the main um, difference uh, in, between the two is, um, um, you know, Pete. Uh, phew. Pete was: um, I think he was uh, I guess to put it uh, bluntly, you know he he, um, he probably should have stopped a little earlier in the evening because he would uh, often um, show up to these recording sessions, sometimes uh, not even hung over, just still drunk. So apparently one morning, Pete comes in. And Mutt has him uh, try to cut a solo. And, uh, you know, he's kind of tripping over himself a little bit. And uh, as you could probably imagine, you know, maybe not even muting correctly will be enough to, um, to set off Mutt. But just completely missing it, you know, just being that far off the mark would definitely be, you know, kind of one of the ultimate sins. So he, um, he uh, decided to send Pete home to, uh, to sober up. And later in the day, he played, um, I'm not sure if it was Sav as well, but he played Joe what, uh, what Pete had laid down. And, and was basically like, you know, can you believe this? And, uh, you know, Joe realized that, um, although Pete was instrumental in, uh, getting the band together, that, uh, at that particular point in time, it wasn't going to, um, it, it, it wasn't sustainable moving forward. And I know the irony in that is, you know, Steve also, you know, had his issues with alcohol and, uh, later succumbed to them, uh, sadly. But, um, basically, they were out at one of their dual leads. Mm-hmm. And, uh, luckily, um, I believe, according to Mr. R, um, who was with them at, at, uh, at Whistlerd at the time, um, he, he, uh, he speaks briefly on his uh, time in Leopard in uh, his book, Fabulous Icons, You can find it online. It's an absolutely fantastic read for the consummate leper fan. Um, Basically, like I said, uh, the rhythms had already been recorded, but it was a matter of trying to figure out who was going to do the leads while uh, figuring out the solos. And uh, they um, would have to find a guitarist relatively quickly. And, um, and, uh, eventually they settled on a lad, not from Sheffield, but a Londoner. And his name was Phil Collin. Yes, sir. Now, Phil, uh, you know, now I, I, I won't, uh, put anything against Pete, you know, what he did with Steve on high and dry and on, um, on through the night. Was absolutely fantastic and had that, um, you know, kind of had like that raw rock punch, you know, more ACDC, you know, kind of style. Um, Phil was just uh, was just an absolute machine. You know, he could just uh, just send notes at absolutely, you know, at will, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, uh, I, I, I wish I could, um, you know put it into words better, but Phil, they brought in Phil on uh, July, the 12th of 1982, <laughs> according to Mr. And Mr. R he, and
1: the album came out on January 20th.
0: Yes. To like, let you, to <laughs> let, to let you, to let you know how, um, you know, how, how late in the process this is comparatively. The album came
1: out and people don't understand like mixing and mastering takes months Takes months.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, like, it's not like this guy had six months to lay down guitar solos. It's like he had fucking one month to lay down guitar solos. Yeah.
0: And apparently, the first uh, piece he did for the band was the photograph solo.
1: Fucking, hey. I'm going to stop you real quick. Use the term raw, is a buzzword. Raw. Yeah, uh, you,
0: you know my vocabulary too well, man. That that was I one's did, not fair.
1: I say I, I tailored this shit. Right, here to you. you go. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Phil brought a completely different flavor on the other side of the um, of the spectrum, I guess, to how Leopard could sound. Yes, you know. Um, yes, because he, he, he uh, you know, he kind of had more of a kind of a blistering, bruising style, which went very well with just how Steve could just formulate chords. Yeah. Like, it's like, it, it, to
1: me, um, Phil's, uh, virtuosity is yeah. fitting for their new level yeah. of like production.
0: Yeah. You know and, what I and, mean? And if you bring in that kind of sizzle yeah. with, you know, kind of just the, um, the punch and the, um, and the, uh, just the, the overall message you send as the riff master Steve's nickname, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, it, it was gin and tonic, peanut butter Precisely. and jelly. It was, you know, it was. Uh, That's goddamn right, dude. Yeah,
1: because here's the bangers thing: bangers and is, mash. Because well, <laughs> what's funny is when I went and Bubbles tried and to guess uh, who played each solo, I was going off of some pretty limited information. And one of the things you told me is like. Phil was the quote unquote, these are massive quotes, quote unquote, better guitar player. So I went from like this point of like um, who is uh, in a classical sense the better guitar player. But here's the thing is like there's the guitar player who's been with Leopard for like years and years and embodies what Leopard is about and has like the soul of the fucking band in them. And then there's the guitar player who kind of brings the virtuosity that matches the higher level of production that comes with Mutt Lang, for instance. So it, yeah, it, it was it's, it's two it's the meeting of two totally different uh, vibes here to create an insanely good album. Like oh yeah, I, just
0: yeah. yeah, The way the way the guitar tracks came together is just you know is just a thing of beauty. Like you know, uh, sometimes I'll go uh, onto YouTube and just you know, listen to the isolated guitars, and that's not a knock against any of the other instruments and the vocals. But you know, it's just the, literally the beautiful music they made together. Yeah. it's yeah. just um, you know it, uh, you know to to any um, to any guitar player, you know, like trying to find their muse. You listen to that, and you're like, "Good there's stuff to be good taken Lord. from." Lord, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah there's uh, and and people have more on that later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fuck. You,
1: you just want to do it right now? I'll, I'll run down my tracks and tell you what I think. Like okay. Because we we need to be running down these tracks. Yeah, here uh, yeah. Anyways. We we can,
0: we can we can I can bring up the um songs. I guess when I talk about like, uh, kind of how how I perceive them, you know, sure. like like I think that's when I can give my uh thoughts. Yeah. You know,
1: absolutely. So opening track, rock rock, till you drop. Mhm. Uh, epic intro, and to me, this solo sounded like a Phil solo.
0: You are correct, Mundo, good sir. Banger.
1: Um. Second one, Photograph. To me, Photograph is one of the few ten out of ten songs in my entire repertoire. Like, I think Photograph is up there with. Uh, and here is the thing: is like Photograph. I don't think photograph is the best song in the entire record, but like weirdly, I think is a 10 out of 10 song to me. It's two different things. This song is a perfect rock song in the same way that jet by Paul McCartney and wings is a perfect rock song. Uh, and photograph.
0: I think that's a Steve solo. Ooh. Um, unfortunately, uh, you would be incorrect because um... You probably don't remember because we are a little toasted right now, but I did say that the first track that Phil ever laid down for the band was the Photograph solo.
1: Oh, shit, really?
0: Yeah, well, I, I I believe that's true. That being said, and I... No disrespect intended to Mutt Lang or anybody who worked on the record, but... Um they should not have faded out the end of photograph in my personal opinion if yeah. you listen to the like photograph is about 4 4 minutes 10 seconds long or 4 minutes 11 seconds depending on the cut i guess on the album if you ever get a chance to listen to the the whole shebang that doesn't get faded out that's about 400 sorry 4 minutes and 21 seconds ish you get to hear Steve's ride out. Now, Phil's solo is absolutely perfect and where it needs to be. Um, you know, it's just... You know, the, the way that he does those dives on that Ibanez Destroyer, just, you oh, know... yeah. And, you know... That's the thing,
1: is a lot of the solos I based on, if he does a dive bomb, that's a Phil solo. But to me, this one sounded more like a Steve So Even though he did the dive bomb. Yeah, Phil, yeah. to me, is more of the dive bomb, but it struck yeah. me
0: as more of a Steve solo. It's funny, because, you know, um, by... By the Hysteria era, you got Steve doing dive bombs because Mr. R was uh, starting to install those uh, Kaler tremolo units on his guitars. But at this point, um, most of his mainline guitars were going to be stoptails. Word. The best, the finest that Gibson had to offer. By the way, Gibson, if you're listening right now, Please make sure to think about our friend here, Mr. John Pagliasati, for one of your next rounds of endorsements for Delta Dagger music.
1: Gibson, I'm slowly installing a small piece of electronics in my Epiphone last Paul to make it sound better. So if you could just send me an R8, it would... It would just really make my day. Or maybe
0: a sixty-one reissue for him to send sixty-one. Send me SC the
1: reissue. no. Fuck your ass. You're gonna send me the Larry Carlton reissue. The Larry Carlton three for. You're gonna send me the Larry Carlton three thirty-five. I'm gonna show up at your. Okay. No, stop. I'm not gonna say that. All right. You're gonna send me the Larry Carlton. Okay. Okay. The Larry them Make sure days. to cut
0: it out after I <laughs> <I'm gonna> said, <laughs>
1: After I tell you, <laughs> I'm gonna
0: come to your house. Okay. No. Oh okay, no. 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 Okay, no we, not, we we love the it. fine we're folks 19, at no, no.
1: Gibson. Oh. Yay. Gibson. You're doing great work.
0: Yeah. 1980s Gibson's. Some of my favorite guitars. Absolute bruisers. Especially the XR1. Great guitars. Please reissue the XR1. And yeah,
1: I. I hey. I'm actually, asking. though, fucked up opinion. The Robo Tuner. I actually like the Robo Tuner. Hey, we're, we're all God's children, alright? <laughs> hey. <laughs> give me your... Give me a fucking stupid... Yo, give me like an R9 with a robo-tuner for a highly discounted price. <laughs> Fuck your ass. Okay. <laughs> alright, we're gonna stop. Alright, Stage Fright. Stage Fright. We're moving on to Stage Fright. Stage Fright, I think it's cool as hell that they open with that live... Kind of opening, you know. It's like they have the whole yeah. crowd. I mean there. I mean it is canned, you know, but like it's the first like minor sound they're doing on the
0: album. It's like the first two yeah. that have this kind of like major uh, yeah. harmony. And, and and they're doing a pedal riff there. I I know I'd I i do not know if I've brought it up yet, but um, you know, a pedal riff uh, you know what I'm saying when I refer to a pedal yeah riff? exactly it's a pedal point it's that
1: you're holding one note and moving around that note yeah, yeah. basically it's I' I, wouldn't, I guess it's your
0: root and you know yes. you're, you're, you're moving you're, around you're chugging it. that root and yeah. then you're hitting other notes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know in in a, I, I wouldn't say a, a cyclical fashion I guess it is a cyclical fashion yeah, it, isn't is, it? Isn't it? it is it is and and it's a huge thing in metal like um, uh. You know, if you want some good pedal riffs that you know, uh to to ponder over, you know, uh two minutes to midnight, the intro to Iron Maiden's Two Dude. Minutes to Midnight's Man. You know, it's Man. You're, uh, you're 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 pedaling on that open A and going up and down on those uh partial chords on uh you know, in, on the middle strings. I forget their names right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you want another sweet pedal riff, uh, you know, uh, Painkiller by Judas Priest after uh, after you hear Scott's amazing godliness, double kicks, good shit. Um, <laughs> Master of Puppets. You know, uh, right after you hear bump that's a that's a pedal riff Wait, what does he say
1: what does he say after that
0: uh what is the intro to- okay so he's you know you got james going what does james say and the passion play crumbling away i'm, I'm your source of self-destruction. self-destruction
1: recite lyrics is a buzzword
0: Motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, kids. <laughs> Got your ass. I am now master of Jack Daniels. Okay. Yo, but stage
1: fright. Okay. That's Steve. a Phil guitar solo. Fuck off. That's a Phil guitar solo. Bingo. Yeah. I'm going to say fuck your ass. There's no way. I don't even question it. That is a Phil no, no, guitar solo. No, no. That is solo. a Phil solo. You, you, I'm you, gonna you, say, did, you did
0: get photo wrong, though, because it is a Phil solo, but it is a Steve rideout. out And like I said, if you had heard the full part of Steve's rideout, out you would love Photograph even I more. I put
1: Steve in it. Steve was my... For a Photograph? He was the one I put, but you it's know, both of them is what you say.
0: Well, I'm saying that Steve, Phil did the main solo after the second chorus. Okay. But Steve that, yeah. did the part at the very end. Okay. Okay. Never so mind. technically you got photo wrong. It, I, yes, it, that is wrong. That is wrong. It, but it, because but I it,
1: based it upon like the solo solo. Right. Um, yes. It, I was it's wrong on it's that.
0: that bomb on the open E that should have given it away. Right. Because he dive bombs it. Steve doesn't yeah. do the dive yeah, bombs. That's I believe a Phil thing. Phil, if you ever get the chance to listen to this, uh, please confirm whether or not that was like a Kaler on your Ibanez or if it was the original hip shot on the Ibanez. But I know it was one of the two because you did dive. Yeah. And, and also, I'm, I just want to say I really love your PC series. And I hope you bring back that really thick one that kind of looks like a, a Les Paul soon. That'd be hot. I, I love you, Phil. That'd be hot, I do. So- um,
1: dude well here's the thing okay look uh, Steve obviously did some insanely heavy lifting for this album
0: oh yeah he up, up, had definitely. to play
1: half the leads and a shit ton of the, and half the know, solos rhythm he, guitar he, he, split,
0: he split the solos yeah. and, and he had already laid down the rhythms with Pete yeah. yeah,
1: so he did a ton of the heavy lifting in terms of the just grunt work of laying down the you know the uh, he, 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 he was and shit. he was unbelievable, you and know? then he and, sent leads and shit. And then poor Pete, uh, you know, Pete. Like, look, man, we can talk shit about Pete. You know, whatever. I, I, I wouldn't but talk shit about Pete. Yeah, Pete. You
0: know, like the problem is, is people have their own ways of of coping with like you know stress or or you know um, trauma and. uh you know we we can't we can't really uh blame him for any of that because no. there aren't very many uh artists with the gumption to kind of buy that bill of goods yeah you know like uh, otherwise we'd all be i apologize to all SoundCloud rappers out there but i'm 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 just using you for a point we we can't all be SoundCloud rappers yeah
1: yeah man i mean and look and the fact that Pete wound up on after this album anyways. It, yeah, I mean, he
0: got his writing credits,
1: yeah. you know. Like Mutt, Mutt wouldn't have fucking put him on the album if he didn't make the cut, you know what I mean? Like that's right. that's not no, a, I mean, that's, he, that's not still, a consolation. He's, he's price. still
0: he still did, you know, he he still uh was very in, in, instrumental uh with the um with some of the guitar work. Matter of fact, um I believe Dimebag actually listed Pete as one of his influences. Shit. Um although uh depending on You see, we'll we'll never be able to ask him, unfortunately. Yeah. um, Yeah. I wonder how he felt about Steve because he mentioned Pete specifically, but sometimes I wonder if he actually meant Steve. This is something that you know is probably contested, but I would I would love to hear, You know, any hearsay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if any of you are consummate Pantera fans, can you please uh, ascertain for me whether or not. Dimebag actually meant Steve, or if he was true to his word and it meant Pete. Uh, w- I do know that he was a huge Ace Freely nut, though. You know, if, if he wasn't, he wouldn't have covered Fractured Mirror, which was on Ace's solo album. That's sick. Well,
1: either way, I. So, yeah, stage fright to
0: Phil. Uh, yeah. Bo- stage, box of Mars bars
1: car. to you. Um, too late for love.
0: Give to Steve mundo. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a great flipping song. You know, um, I think, uh, I think about too late for love. Um, you know, it's got one of those synth intros, you know, kind of like one of those running little, uh, it kind of sounds kind of bubbly, kind of warbling. <laughs> yeah, it just goes up and West down. It's the West Coast... Exactly. Uh, it's the West Coast modular yeah. synth sound. And then, it and it then, has the and, and then boop. And then you hit up... And then, you know, Steve just starts dancing down that minor scale. <laughs> you know... Yeah. That's
1: some good shit right there, man. Oh, yeah. Like it's, uh, and, that, and that shit, like, the yeah. most... Uh like when you listen to Metallica and you hear their most like dated songs, they're all like ripping off of this. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, like I mean the gu- the guys who were coming out of the fucking gate and like uh breaking ground with sounds like this is like Metallica was like let's do a cliched like uh too late for love kinda rip off, you know? It's like these guys like came up with that sound, I feel like.
0: Yeah, and uh and a huge part of that I I would like to believe is, you know, Kind of the way that Steve and Phil blended. Because, I mean, think about it. It's a very similar way to how James and Kirk blend. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um,
1: for like, sure. As uh,
0: a matter of fact, um, yeah. Uh, I believe the, it's the track after this that is like one of the gospels that people talk about in terms of uh, heavy metal influence. <laughs> but we'll get to that in just a second. The one okay. thing I love about Too Late for Love is, you know, is... Uh, you know, it's not openly like broken heart, woe is me, or woe is this person. It's kind of just a a dark, analytical. It's a little cinder. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. A the drums,
1: uh, which Mutt I guess program. <laughs> <laughs> they have some fat fucking yeah, and, uh, and, and like fills in, a, in there. And, and, <laughs> that, and <laughs> that, <laughs> that lovely <laughs> snare that
0: I keep talking about. You know, because yeah. uh, there's just something about that snare that please. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, I am not a drummer, and so I probably can't talk about many parts of the drums. So I focus on the snare because I know that drummers are usually very proud of their snare. The snare, snare
1: tone. is the only part that interferes with the guitar part, so we listen to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah.
1: Um, But you're right, dude. No, on this whole album, they have this. Da-da, snare sound which is yeah. so like eighties and, but and it's ev- kind yeah, of it's, even um, even
0: though it sounds a little dated and m- some people would say quote unquote produced, uh it it cuts through the mix, you know, like it it's it says, Hey, I'm here, deal with it. What does it sound I'm like? Fucking lovely. Uh you know, just uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just think of it. Say it again. <laughs> you know. Doosh, Say
1: doosh. it again. Okay. Use an pay as one of the Budweathers. No.
0: <laughs> Alrighty. Boosh, boosh. Okay. I, I, I apologize to my parents if they ever have to listen to this episode. I love you very much. And uh, uh, the only part of me that I don't love right now is uh, my brain for roping me into all this delicious Jack. Everyone, right. please, please, everyone, please buy the bu- the best that Lynchburg, Tennessee has to offer, and remember to also get the best that Nashville has to offer. When they give an endorsement to my friend, Mister John Pagliassotti of Delta Dagger Music, Gibson endorsement coming in, buddy. You deserve it. You're fantastic. I love you.
1: Yes, so- sir. Salute.
0: Salute. Salute.
1: Okay. All right. So, so when Steve was recording this album, he was playing a Danelectro into a Supro amplifier. Is that
0: correct? Are you trying to fucking him, you fucker? That sounds like a Jimmy Page rig to me. It actually does. Okay. Fuck off. <laughs> he <laughs> was yeah, okay. Steve was playing a. Uh, no, no, no. Um, if if we had to pick. Oh, I see. Buzzword is Marshall, isn't it? Alright. Well, I'm I'm walking. Say the thing. I'm, I'm walking into it. Okay, so um this is, you know, since we're deep diving, this is for my Marshall pundits out here. I just know I you know I love you guys. And uh, everyone knows that the Marshall was the sound of uh of the gods at this point, you know. I know most people preferred the 1959 circuit super leads. But by 1975, they came out with another circuit called the 2203, and it was a bruiser. It fucked my guys. Now,
1: and he, he played a 1954 Fender Stratocaster into it, right?
0: No. I'm what getting, did he play into I, it? Let me, let me finish, my guy. <laughs> all right. So, so, you know, basically, the JMP 2203 was released in like 75, and, you know, it sold all right. But by 1981, their uh, licensing agreement had ended, and they had found another distribu- uh, distributing partner, and they rebranded the 2203 as the single-channel Marshall JCM-800, and I'm sure you've heard of that particular i've heard it before yeah i played doing those motherfuckers it? yeah it's a, I've buzzword. Played it. <laughs> it's a fucking buzzword. it's not i oh. name a
1: specific amp was a buzzword uh, so uh, you, it was Marshall Jason, all right i'm gonna hit it fuck yeah, you you, you don't hit it um but like you were saying yeah. I, I think you mentioned earlier that he played a 1954 fender stratocaster through no, that amp is that correct so
0: full of shit your eyes are brown
1: I don't think Uh, so, man. No,
0: no, no, he. uh, No, he
1: definitely. Wait, what do you play for it?
0: Like Steve lived, and you know that that's a bad that's a bad uh, term. I was gonna say lived, but um, uh, no, he. um, Yeah, well, I shouldn't say that because he. uh, You know, he did have some SG double necks because. he idolized page the eds
1: 1275 yeah okay he
0: had two in red and a handful in white apparently he had five on order at the time of his passing i'm not sure how much uh how, how how true that is um and i know that uh he also had a couple of really nice firebirds and he liked the firebird because uh in his words it was halfway between a Strat and a Paul. I was going to say, okay, I need to hit you again
1: because name a specific, name a specific model brand. of guitar. Yeah. Well,
0: I just want to say for the record that his love was the Les Paul. Yeah. And even though most people like the maple-capped standards for obviously their legendary tone, his particular uh, acts of choice... For this album, per Mr. Mike Rogers, please buy uh, Fabulous Icons, available online. Um, he preferred the XR1, which was actually a, uh, uh, a precursor, a, uh, an ancestor to what became the Les Paul Studio. And it was uh, loaded with high-output ceramic Dirty Fingers pickups, had a maple neck and uh was sprayed in a gold burst which you don't see much of nowadays cuz it was a very unstable finish that would end up being refinished in silver bursts. Try and find one if you can. I've been looking for about 3 or 4 years, haven't found the right one yet. <laughs>
1: uh what kind of tone would like an all mahogany body give you versus like mahogany with a maple top? Uh
0: well, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, even though maple is like, uh, hold on. I'm trying to go through my tone ones right now. Even though maple is denser, you know, it kind of gives you that a little bit of a sweeter, lighter tone. Whereas a uh, an all mahogany guitar is going to be, you know, like darker, you know, like if you could. what do you mean
1: by darker?
0: Um, just, uh, maybe not, maybe bassier, boomier, like the, like brighter. No, no, like darker, darker. Like if you had to compare like a standard to a custom, the two things that would be the biggest, um, well, I guess three things that would be the biggest, uh, differences in the tone. Even if you had the same pickups would probably be the maple cap to make it sound a little brighter, crisper, you know, the, uh, rosewood fretboard, and, uh, you know, if you're playing a reissue standard, you know, like a nitro finish, you know, very, very light kind of allows the wood to breathe a little bit. So
1: as opposed to brighter, it's going to sound.
0: Yeah. Whereas a custom, you know, it's going to have the the mahogany top. So it's going to be a little darker. Uh, or... s- some customs are more opaque. So it's a thicker finish and wood doesn't breathe as well. And it'll be an ebony board.
1: It's going to sound warmer.
0: Uh, yeah, kind of warmer, darker, denser.
1: Say the phrase "warm" is a buzzword. <laughs> okay, the next song on my list is "Die Hard the Hunter." Yes, sir. I thought the intro with like the helicopters and shit kind of reminded me of like the Wall Pink Floyd a little bit, which you know there had been accusations that this band and Pink Floyd had been like you know, maybe sharing sounds. Uh, I won't say like stealing sounds. They're just like blinking at each other from across the way on their sounds. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a guitar solo that I put as like Steve slash Phil, but I eventually circled Phil. I felt like the, um, kind of modal interchange on this one suited Phil better than Steve. What, what is the outcome on this one?
0: Uh, I'm going to have to correct you on that one. I'm afraid the, uh, the, uh, the guy who takes this solo is Steve. This is uh, um, this is one of Steve's, uh, I guess, brain children, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and the, the thing about this solo, the thing I love about this solo is, you know, Phil can, you know, just turn on the gas, mm-hmm. drop him the hat, and he'll rev it to F1 levels. And, you know, he's, he's the consummate technician. He's, 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 he's great. And on the other hand, and I just think is a perfect compliment is Steve. And he think the cool thing I love the most about Steve is that, um, is that he does know how to go fast. He doesn't go quite as quite as Phil, but he, he can go fast. But one thing that he really focuses on is just getting his message across. That's goddamn know? right. And he, and, uh, you know, they, and here's the cool thing. This is what I love about their duo. They both do it in their own way. You mm-hmm. know? And, mm-hmm. and the thing is, is you know, is uh, it doesn't matter how long it takes Steve. You know, like, you could probably look at it on the track listing. The solo, the full solo of Steve for, like, Die Hard the Hunter is literally two minutes long. And this might sound very, very controversial, mind you. But if I had to pick between listening to We Will Rock You or the solo for Die Hard the Hunter, I'd have to think about it. I would have to think about it. You know? (laughs) All right. right, Well.
1: (laughs) That's fine. I'll let you set it on my program.
0: What? It's fine. (laughs) Oh. I don't think we ever talked about Queen. I don't think we ever discussed...
1: Look, man, a lot of people talk shit on Queen. I'm just going to say Brian May's solo on We Will Rock You is, like... In terms of, like, serving the song and also doing an epic guitar solo, that solo fits so well. Oh, no. Have you I'm- ever listened to Queen? What was their stupid fucking concert? Uh, was it Live Aid? Or- no, it's like Wembley Stadium where they fucking played for, like, 80,000 people.
0: There's like three done that a handful of times, or some shit. Like yeah, if you like, if you saw them at Rock and Rio, they were playing in front yeah. of a shitload of yeah, people, exactly.
1: Too. And it's it's but, Freddie Mercury, Brian May, uh, uh,
0: John Deacon and Roger John Taylor. Deacon.
1: I was gonna say John Densmore. That's the that's the Doors, and they fucking get up there and just they own the entire. Fucking
0: no, 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 no. Here, that's here, here. I think I think you misunderstood me. It's one of those things where. Brian's We Will Rock You Solo is absolutely perfect, but you know, um, there's no buts. What I meant to say is, you know, in you're you're kind of capturing the same amount of time. And, you know, I guess the way that I was geared, I would pick, you know, kind of like that raucous, punchy mm-hmm. rhythm that Phil's mm-hmm. playing, and Phil's just ble and Steve's just bleeding over his guitar for two minutes. Cause as Amazing as the We Will Rock You solo is. How long is it? It's like 30 seconds. Yeah. You know, Steve's literally soloing for like two minutes, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, Brian, if you are listening to this, uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, you were very kind to me and my father when you uh, signed our copy of Queen in 3D at Book Soup back in 2017. And, um, I, you, you, your band was my first love before I got interested in Leopard. Um, you know, and, uh, um, I, if I ever do meet you, I want you to sign my copy of a night at the opera underneath the prophet song, because it's one of your most underrated pieces. And I love the layering that you did with the vocals. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's like, I, I lose my shit when I see those guys play the Queen set at fucking, like...
0: Live Aid. Live Aid, and it's like it's like four dudes on yeah. stage. <laughs> right. I think the one thing that cheeses me is, like, the problem is, is, you know... Um, well, I don't think it's a problem per se, but when, you know, pe- people who, who've seen the Queen movie think they know everything about Queen, you know? And... Uh it's one it's one of those things where it's kind of a slap in the face to the kids who got teased about liking Queen so much as kids you know like like I got teased mercilessly like 2006 2007 4th 5th grade I was teased mercilessly for loving this band
1: I mean they're literally called Queen
0: I know like. and then and then 12 years later apparently everything's okay and then you see I see these people on social media saying Oh my God, Queen is so cool, and I'm like, I mean, it, you know, people can like what they like. I, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, free will. You know, it's not an illusion, but you know, if 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 people know, you know, hey, you know, you you did not used to like this, or you used to, you know, not scorn this, but spurn it, and all of a sudden, you know, the movie comes out, and you're 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 suddenly a fan, you know. It's kind of uh, kind of sus. you know. That, at least to either that or that meant that you were a closet fan the whole time, which is also worse because you know you couldn't you know join this other person who was being persecuted because they liked an older band. You know, yeah.
1: you're like a fake theater kid.
0: Uh, um, okay, I, I, we're not going into there. I'm. I'm right, I'll, 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 there. I'll say we're something go. that I'll regret. No, we're not going go there. What song was on? Uh, bu- 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 the one after Die Hard, the Hunter.
1: Ah, uh,
0: yes. Foolin' Phil guitar solo. absolutely flippin' lutely. Now, now the, the the one thing I love about Foolin' is you know you kind of get that synth intro that goes you know. Another thing I'll say: this is something I have not brought up
1: yet, but um. This is something on like half their songs before now. Uh, they love to do the false chorus. You know what I'm talking about?
0: Collaborate.
1: They love to do the false chorus. So, Foolin', is anybody out
0: there? You know what I'm talking about? Like Oh, uh, you, you see you call it a false chorus? I call it an augmented bridge.
1: Augmented bridge, yeah. You know, because that that sounds a little it.
0: that sounds less reductive. You know, to me,
1: to me, a bridge has to come after a chorus, which they do. Oh. They do have bridges on. Yeah, this they do album. have. They absolutely yeah. Because when I
0: because th- uh, I don't know, like when I think of like a bridge or maybe even a like a secondary verse. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, because because it's not it's
1: hard. It's like a pre-chorus. Yeah, There's like a thing where it's like there can yeah. be a pre-chorus where it's a thing that you say every time before the chorus. But totally. Like,
0: it's crazy because their verses have a distinct sound. Their, let's say maybe their secondary verses or though that pre-chorus has a distinct sound. And then the chorus is completely different too. Right.
1: Because you talk about like photograph. You know, Bring I'm out of cover. luck, out Whoa,
0: of luck.
1: Look what you've done to this rock and roll clown. That's the pre-chorus. Or the kind of false chorus. You know, what's it, so. funny
0: is I would consider the false chorus as "I see your face every time I dream." Yeah, you know, because it's a yeah. different sound yeah. from "I'm out of luck, out of love." Then you go "I see your face <laughs> every, every
1: time, time I dream,", dream. Yeah. and then you go oh,
0: oh, uh, look at you "But, look at
1: you. but that's what, it's almost like uh, see your face is like the pre-chorus." Yeah. And then, Whoa, look what you've done to this rock and, and that, roll clown. And that's, and that, the, and that's the, chorus. the chorus. That's the chorus. Right? Yeah. You could have titled the song Rock and Roll Clown or something. And that's... But I know. Photograph.
0: not don't don't want, you. want you. you. see? I know. And like... I don't need you. You know, the but one thing the that I'll chorus. give about uh, to Def Leppard, you know, it, since we did bring up Queen, um, is that... Both are incredibly layered, so yes. complex, so yes. so um so just constructively dense. I fucking love that. Cause I'll say
1: um, there's like four or five songs on this record that to me have a false chorus, but I think that's dope.
0: Yeah. Jazz. I mean I, I love I love foolin as a staple of um of kind of like leopard's sound, you know, and it's a, it's a bummer because you know most people Nowadays, if unless you listen to like, you know, our good friends at ninety-five-five KLOS out of Lawndale. Ew. Uh, guys, if you're listening to this, Marcy, I want your autograph. Mr. Greg B. Harrell, one day I would like to take you to lunch or maybe that brunch, you know, the breakfast with the Beatles thing on Sunday mornings. Ow. You know, just, just just know that I appreciate the hell out of both of you and uh you guys get me through the day. 955 KLOS, around since 1969. That's right. Now, we're um Foolin', right? So the we're thing is, about Foolin' fool, is the staple is a staple Leopard song. You know, it's amazing because you know, you, first thing you hear is Steve on that Alvarez Dreadnought just uh, strumming that mm, strumming that uh, that A variation, yeah. you know, arpeggiating that A and um you know, it's just it's just amazing. You know, you hear you hear um, you know Joe, and you think it's going to be kind of a softer song because it's the um, because it's the uh, you know you you hear that dreadnought and uh, you know the, the uh, freaking I think one of my favorite things about foolin' is if you ever get the ch- the pleasure of watching the music video, you know Steve's playing that that uh, Alvarez on stage, and uh, you know. Right as they switch to the uh he- to the heavier stuff, he just yeets that guitar <laughs> off to the side and wheels around that XR one to start playing those uh to start doing that A based pedal riff. It's 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 amazing. It's uh
1: Well, mention music video is one of the buzzwords.
0: Oh no. Uh I hope I'm still with you by the time we're You
1: you are, man. Foolin. Mm. Um the song after Foolin.
0: <sighs> All right, well, anyways, Foolin's fantastic because it goes from classic to hard driving and then back to classic again and then just keeps on crescendoing it's it, it's a staple trust me it does we're, we're, it's
1: and it's funny you brought to me that like bon jovi came after this because this is kind of like um
0: yeah like that's that's the, know, that's the one thing I'm we
1: wanted, dead or alive it's like oh, the, yeah it, it, it builds up and yeah, then gets
0: softer again there, there's so
1: many like 80s like Trash singles. They're yeah. good. They're not trash. Yeah. It's I'll, like there's so many like 80s singles by like Bon Jovi. These guys. That it's just straight. If I'm, if I'm still sitting
0: upright, I, I'll give you my closing statements after we do the uh, the um, I guess the ranking. OK. Before we do that, we need to talk about. I know the we got best song three or four on the entire more.
1: record. Really? Yeah. It's the best song on the record. And that song is called Rock of Ages. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to say this. Photograph is the only 10 out of 10 song on the record, but also Rock of Ages is a better song than that song. And I will elaborate if you'd like me to, but let's talk
0: about Rock of Ages. I, 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 I will ask you to elaborate a little later on, but you know, the one thing, the interesting thing about Rock of Ages is there's a fun, there's a great story behind it. Yeah. Um, you know, Obviously, with Mutt's recording style, very, very, very repetitive. You know. He'd have them do multiple takes. It's what led to so much of the, uh, I guess, the internal strife during the Pyromania recording period. Now, in instances of levity, you know, sometimes Mutt would change things up a bit. You've got, you know, you know, every time he's counting you guys in, you go one, two, three, four. You know, and one, two, three, four gets tired after a while. You know, he's trying to switch it up for you. So he just starts you know, uno, dos, tres, cuatro. You know, just mixing up languages. But eventually he just went to uh, gibberish and he just goes. Now. If you ask Mutt or any of the Lep's what that means, they will probably tell you, uh, prancing through the woods silently. But What is that? But if, but I've taken it to real German friends, to, to German exchange students in, in like high school. And they're saying, yeah, it's, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's gibberish. gibberish. But, but if you ask any of the leps, that's what it means. And, uh, long story short you know that was just one thing that Mutt accidentally left in intentionally on one of the uh, on one of the clips in the count in and that's uh, that's uh, you know it it became part of rock history you know if only a small footnote of it well and matter hmm. of fact uh, on top of it the, the, the name of the song itself I believe is actually a hymn in the Bible that's right I'd heard that too Uh, You know, they were recording in a church one day for, I guess, a different uh, sonic signature. You know, there was a Bible open near Joe and he just starts and, you know, he's open to a particular hymn. just starts going, Rock of Ages, Rock of Ages, still rolling, rock and rolling. And um, Mutt was like, hey, that's the name of this song? That's what we're gonna do. It's very interesting because a very similar thing happened uh, um, for one of their songs. The last song that they recorded on their next album, one of the last songs they recorded on their next album, Hysteria, was called "Pour Some Sugar on Me." I'm sure you heard of it. And uh, I've heard of it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and, and, and originally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, according to. Legend, you know, that was just uh, three chords that Joe would bang out, you know, the E to the A to the B. And uh, and eventually, um, you know, uh, Mutt, you know, it was just something that they would sing for fun in between, you know, recording the actual songs that were on the album, right? And Mutt was like, hey, you guys got to throw that in too, you know? And, uh, and although it wasn't their highest charter, because I believe that was Love Bites off of Hysteria, obviously Sugar is, you know, their signature song to this day, oh, yeah. but we're not talking about Hysteria right now. Although we might in a couple of months, am I right? In like twenty twenty five. There we go, <laughs> hey, guys. Take a rain check for twenty twenty five because we will be talking about Hysteria next. But yeah, Rock of Ages is one of the uh, is one of the big three off of Pyro. It's um, an incredibly solid song and. Honestly, one of the best music videos, too, because uh, at the end of the. You already got me for that buzzword, didn't you?
1: Did I? For mentioning yeah, a I music did. video? Oh, yeah, I you, did. I get mentioned you the Foolin
0: music video, remember? Yeah, that's right. I it was literally the song before that. this. And Anyways, uh, the thing about Rock of Ages is, you know, right after the. And you hear that uh, uh, electronic kit. You'll hear Joe go owl right, and if you go to the music, it's better to burn out than fade away. Which he borrowed from Neil Young, by the That's way. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, if you if you if you go to the music video and you wait to go owl right, they'll literally zoom in on an owl and it looks at you. Owl right. It goes owl right. <laughs> it's amazing. Please, guys, trust me on this. If you're hearing this, go to the Rock of Ages video. And when you hear, all right, you'll see a freaking I'm not sure what kind of owl it is, but he'll be looking at you, and you'll be like, oh, the drunk guy's not full of shit.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the one where they say the word pyromania in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. gather round, rock this place to the ground burn it up let's go for bro i'm not going to sing it anymore i'm sorry guys I, yeah. I i i can't i probably can't stay in key right now but yeah they do actually mention the name of the album in this song um which is this is the one yeah. this is the one where they do it right and uh, i remember you were drawing um parallels to uh to some uh, other ACDC okay so right. here's
1: the thing i was like slightly off base because on a later song on the album, there's like an instrumental breakdown where uh, Joe is listing these provocative words. Um, I got it mixed up because this is the one where he says Pyromania, but there's a later song on the album where he lists several words in a row. He doesn't say the name of the album, but it reminded me of ACDC High Voltage where Bon Scott is like, you know, hey. Okay, <laughs> contracts
0: high, high voltage, voltage. which said, which is yeah. funny because you're not he's not referencing that album he's referencing an earlier album that's
1: oh that's right you're actually Cause,
0: right cuz high voltage was the one that TNT was on which predates sturdy deeds that's by right by a few years i'm sorry acdc fans i i don't quite remember the uh the um i don't quite remember the pre highway to hell uh album uh release dates uh, feel feel free to uh, shower your Practice anger in the, in, in the comments. Yes, follow and subscribe. Yeah, don't don't forget to like and subscribe. And, <laughs> and uh, um, Gibson, if you're listening, please Gibson, shoot John Pagliasati an endorsement because Gibson, he deserves I am, it.
1: I am tearing your guitars apart. Using nothing but your stock equipment, but
0: he, <laughs> but he's going Tom Scholz, like he, you know, it's it's, it's it's Tom out of it's out of I'm love.
1: Taking, I'm taking nothing. I'm taking nothing but what you guys already offer, and building shit that's way better than anything you currently offer. So, fucking
0: he, he, Gibson, play. he doesn't actually mean that. If he plans to do that, I 100
1: percent mean that. I will tear please, you down, please, motherfucker. Please, please,
0: please decide to endorse <laughs> Cerebrus Music out of Santa Barbara. Because they want Gibson Firebird Customs and Triburst. Burst.
1: I will destroy. But we will, you. but we will
0: do three by three uh, headstocks <laughs> because I don't care if the G goes out of tune; it just looks. I cooler. will not
1: do a three x three headstock because my goddamn guitar will not stay in tune. It will creak on the motherfucker G string. Will creak on that motherfucker of. Yeah. Doesn't matter what your nut is made of. You will try and tune that motherfucking. It will
0: ding, 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 ding. Do you want to go to the next song, buddy?
1: coming under fire coming under fire I already told you my theory about this is that I think this is Steve breaking into a stratocaster and you were saying it may be his firebird in the middle position which is a very valid I mean that could absolutely be
0: well that's tough to say because you know I don't remember uh, discussing this with Mr. R don't forget to purchase fabulous icons available online. Um, I don't remember uh, uh, discussing this with Mister R. I'm not sure when the first Firebird arrived. It might have arrived after Pyro, but I do know that he had a telly and maybe a couple of Strats. Most of that he probably used on Hysteria, but sure. you know the way that that tone does sound. I would not be surprised if. That was the one that he broke character on to yeah. use something. Cause I'll be honest with you, the way the the way that it's EQ'd and the way the effects are, it sounds a little snappy to be a mahogany neck. Right. It's that strat
1: uh, attack. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of sounds about.
0: like a maple neck, which um, I know the XR one had, but I don't think it could be the right. XR so one. Beca- because of the dirty fingers. Like it, dirty it, fingers, it, there you it, go. It, 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 yeah, it would be it would be too um. Too bitey, too punchy. So, it could be single coils in maple. That's like the that's only way to kind of get that that squeak. You and know, the, the twenty
1: five and, and a half scale length. I think is like the only way you can get sure. that yeah. snap
0: to it. That um, fucking Mr. R, if you if you do hear this, uh, please help us clarify because uh, you Mr. know, Mr. R,
1: help me help me. Fuck, I think that's a strat right there.
0: Yeah, please 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 help us figure that out. I know. Uh, I, I know that you'd have. Um, very, very valuable insight as to what that particular guitar may be. Yeah, and don't uh, forget to purchase fabulous icons. Yeah, available online. Hit that. Okay.
1: You ever listened to uh, Robert Plant's um, "Principles of Moments"?
0: No. Did you know that Steve uh, was recruited by Robert to be in like his uh, solo band? You were telling me about that. Hey, tell me that story. Tell me that oh, story. Oh, it's fucking great. Okay, so I know this isn't pyro, guys, but bear with me. Um, during the Hysteria Tour, uh, they would play what we call in the round, and it would be a, a, uh, a stage right in the middle of the arena so that they could sell out every seat. It, honestly, it's brilliant. If I, if I ever had the budget to be able to do that, I would so would. I'd do it in a heartbeat. Now, normally, to get into... Uh, to the stage without being recognized by the fans the lads would either be smuggled in in like laundry carts or uh their touring cases you know and um according to legend robert plant dressed up as a security guard one time and since everybody was so focused on leopard they didn't see the guy who happened to look like robert plant dressed as a security guard just walking waltzing in to uh, the in the round stage, and apparently, uh, at some point, had asked Steve to join his solo project because of Steve's similarities to Jimmy Page, because uh, Jimmy was Steve's muse in the way that Steve was mine. And Steve, you know, uh, kind of said, "Well, can you wait until after the tour?" And um, I don't think believe enough time elapsed for him to. Um, kind of level out before um before being able to um to materialize that one can only imagine what could have come of that because you know one could just think of you know what Steve might have been able to uh to do with plant yeah and or or even you know i i know this is an even further reach but what if Steve and Jimmy just oh, did a dueling... Christ. Could you imagine a dueling guitar record between those two? <laughs> Ooh, like that, Thin like, Lizzie,
1: but it's Jimmy
0: Page and Steve Clark? Yeah. <laughs> oh my like, god. Like, think about it. You have Steve laying down the exact chords that you know Jimmy wants and Jimmy noodling over it, and then they could just fucking switch. Uh, Mr. Page, I... I if you're if you're listening to this, I I would like to hear your opinions on Steve Clark cuz I have ne I've never been able to f- dig up any uh interviews on how you felt about him. If uh if you were familiar with Mr. Clark and uh his playing style and how he idolized you like so many other uh fantastic guitar players, we would love to hear your side of the story presented to you by Mr. John Pagliasati of Delta Dagger Music on this fantastic podcast. Uh, <laughs> Bands Spears and Buzzwords. I almost said it out of order, man. I'm sorry. Um, That's all right. All right. Uh, next song.
1: Action Not Words. I put a star next to this one because Action Not Words to me is a, a highlight on slide two of the record. Because it's the most like upbeat one on that whole fucking side of the record I feel like side one has so many upbeat rockers and then side two is like really serious you know
0: you know what's funny is it's funny because like, really uh, it's, it's like kind of an inverse of of appetite for destruction like instead of the a side and the B side for appetite and destruction they have the G side and the R side and if like you listen to appetite for destruction the the G side, is all the gruff, rough, and tumble, just, you know, give-it-to-you songs. And the R side is kind of like the more romantic, you know, uh, serenader songs. You know, and it's kind of funny because uh, it's very much the inverse, like with Pyromania. You know, Pyromania, you know, that, that, that A side, you know, is supposed to, hook, you know, a particular audience and just be like, you know, here we are. This is, uh, this is who we are now in a way. And, um, the B side just turns around and says, oh, oh by the way, you know, we can still offer these fantastic, um, you know, narratives and, uh, and songs, um, that kind of delve into our vices. You know? Yeah. This one definitely has kind of like... Except for perhaps Die Hard the Hunter. You know, Die Hard the Hunter might be a little more at home on the B side. Mm -hmm. But I love how both sides end with a very dark, very kind of punchy, anthemic song that's true because this one to me is like a brighter
1: more upbeat song to like go on uh the second half of the album and it's yeah action not
0: words is you know it's it's an interesting song like you know i um i gave it a couple listens through uh recently and um you know it's 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 weird it's hard for me to it's hard for me to place it uh in the grand scheme of the of the mammoth achievement that is pyro um more on that later. I'll I'll have a little more to say sure. about it in just in just a sec. Because this one to me, I enjoyed
1: it as like kind of a breath of fresh air on the second half of the album, in that it's like one of the only ones that's like a straight up like major sounding, upbeat uh, sounding song. You know, sure, it, it gives me a breath of fresh air on the second half of the album. Um, this one to me sounds like a Steve solo. Bingo, bingo bongo, uh, bingo blingo. I also see, um, on this one where, uh, Joe is kind of like, uh, he, there's like a false ending and then, and then Joe is like, lights, soundtrack, like,
0: like oh, you're saying he's kind of gives you a bit of a bond.
1: He's giving me a bond Scott where bond Scott goes like. Contracts, high voltage. High voltage. Okay. Like it's, it's well, kinda, we, we got our callback, ladies and gentlemen. He was, callback. he was
0: fin- He was finally able to uh, tie it back in.
1: Yeah, it's that's that is the callback to Dirty Dudes for me. You know, yeah, that's that's where I see that. Um, final song,
0: Billy's got a gun. Oh, Let's jump into boy. it, boy. Um, you know, uh, you know, just a great song. Um, um. I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to convey, you know, like, uh, kind of the, the, um, the direction that they took in this, but I, I, I love, you know, how, um, you know, a lot of their songs kind of were, you know, a little bit about, you know, I wouldn't say teen angst, but kind of like, you know, I'd say more like, you know, young people problems, you know, am I going to get this girl, you know, uh singing about this girl or you know, um talking about uh, you know, like perceived respect or you know, like how you perceive yourself. This one is an absolute, you know, it's 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 uh it's tough to pinpoint because um you know, it's talking about a mindset, you know, kind of like Delving into something that we still consider taboo to this day, you know, and, uh, I think it was very brave of them to put something like this on here, especially given, you know, I hate to get morbid about it, but, you know, like what we deal with here in the U S you know, some, if someone who needs help, but like doesn't quite receive that help in that way snaps, it uh it could be detrimental to all of us and uh and it's not exactly the fault of everyone else it's in terms of you know how to handle this the situation of it occurring it's our fault in not having the not the training but the education and the um wherewithal to be able to prevent something like this and um and i think in uh you know, in a world that does have a lot of downturns and uh, you know, kind of more dark uh, overtones. You know, we're we're uh, you know, it's it's very hard to with a clear conscience, you know, put this in a set list nowadays because it uh, it t- kind of detracts from um, you know a general feeling of you know. Life is better than it was because this thing was, you know, written damn near forty years ago, and it still uh, still rings true. You know, it's tough. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring down the mood, but um, uh, and you guessed who was the solo? <laughs> I hate to hate to. This blunt is a Steve trauma. one to me. Absolutely. Um, uh, Phil uh, supposedly took one chunk of it, but I think he took the right out, whereas still, ha- whereas Steve had the main. Okay. So we're giving that to Steve overall. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, it's a very poignant song and it's very interesting because both the, the longest songs on this album were the final songs on their side. I don't know if you, uh, picked up on that. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. cause, no, cause Die Hard Die the, the hunter, hunter is and, yeah. over six minutes long. Yeah. And, and Billy's is, uh, approaching six minutes right short and, and, short and, six and then minutes. the interesting yeah. thing about billy which uh i think you know did reflect later in you know some other albums by other bands is uh it has like you know maybe half a minute of a really well put together um synth and electric kit right out yeah yeah you know it's 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 very progressive in a way you know just showing off i guess uh Mutz chops at uh dialing in a, a kit to that level. What does the kit sound like? Uh yeah, well, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of digital. Well, I mean, obviously it well, I guess analog, <laughs> you know, I don't think they were doing digital then, but it's really cool because um, you know, it's it's uh, you know, you hear the um the pumps that you hear from, you know, a lot of the um you know, a lot of the other drums, you know, you hear you hear the heavy toms and the snare but the really interesting thing is the uh kind of like the synth sounds that he puts in front of it where it's the surge and receding and receding kind of like almost like a tide you know coming in coming out and then it just stops abruptly and that's the end of the record it's uh it's brilliant you know i've i've always uh you know i've always liked it and uh you know even though it's dated you know it's one of my favorite parts of listening to the record by itself cuz you know even when in every once in a blue moon i do hear it on KLOS they end it after you hear the uh bang instead of hearing that little ride out and you know i totally get it you know it's not a radio song you know the fact that they're playing it at all like pumps me up follow 955 KLOS southern california fans are the uh, they're the best
1: That's what's up
0: but uh, yeah, Kale, um, the, the, that's the thing. That end of Billy's got a gun is just like kind of, you know, it's, it kind of ends with a mutt flex, saying, "Hey, I can do this. What are yeah. you guys gonna do?" It kind of like is an invitation to all the uh, producers of hair metal from there on, you know, to see what they could bring to the table.
1: Why don't why didn't you rank the songs on the album? From
0: like least
1: favorite to favorite.
0: Alright. I'm gonna you're gonna have to give me some time to think about this. Uh, at this point we are very drunk. Courtesy of Jack Daniels Gentleman Jack Double Mellow, the best Lynchburg has to offer. Jack, please give us a call. We love you. We love what you make. Alright. So you're going to be pissed because of how I ranked certain things. I'm sure. And, uh, with the caveat that I give with this album is picking the best songs on this album, you know, 10 to one is kind of like ranking my 10 favorite Gibson custom shop, 59 reissues. Like if I had 10 of them in a row and I had to play each one, you know, some might have a little more mojo than others, but some are still quite good, and I'd be content with them. Gibson, if you're listening, please feel free to give either of us a call. We love you. Now, number 10 for me. Uh, you know, at, at, the, at the bottom, even though, like I said, I love every song on this album. Number 10, um, I actually would consider Stage Fright to be number 10, my number 10. And uh the the reason for I would give for that is um, you know, it's kind of tough to gauge the direction of um of uh how where the song's going to go. Because, you know, when you when you hear the the start, you know, you got these, you know, these nice juicy pedal riffs that uh that they're laying down and all of a sudden, you know, uh, Joe's, you know, kind of, you know, hitting his signature, his signature growl and uh, and uh, the chorus kind of seems to sound like some of the they more uh, love themed songs. So it's like I'm, I'm getting mixed messages here, you know, and don't get me wrong, I still think this is, you know, a, a great song. Absolutely, but the fact that they didn't commit to either the love or the heavy, you know, like we were talking about, um, it's 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 very neutral, and I would and uh, that's why I would kind of put it at number ten because, um, you know, it's uh, it tried to be the like kind of like one of the quintessential pyro songs, and but in doing so, it kind of uh, lost a little bit of flavor in my opinion, you know. Uh, Number nine, uh, for me, action, not words. And uh, <laughs> I know we're going to disagree on this one a little bit. Um, but uh, for me, the reason why I would pick put action, not words a little lower uh, is, I hate to say it, but it's guilt by association. You know, both of its neighbors are so fantastic. You know, when you hear action, not words come on, you don't think, oh, sweet, it's action, not words. You know, you're kind of like, uh, is Billy going to start soon? <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, it's, I know that, uh, you know, some people aren't a, a big fan of coming under fire, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of up there for me. All right, here's where I'm going to piss off the pyro pundits right here. Number eight for me. Rock of Ages. <laughs> and, uh, And I know that's, that's going to piss off a lot of people, but, um, you know, the thing is, is like, for me, it's just not the, uh, you know, it's, it's not quite the best that LEP has to offer, you know, like they have so many more complex, you know, just absolutely driving songs that are absolutely, you know, that can, that can, you know, rock your socks off. You know, they're, 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 some of them are beautifully written, beautifully composed and, and Rock of Ages, um, you know, is, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of like one of those uh, mellow ones, you know, or, you know, it sounds like it's, it, it drives hard and I love the music video because of the owl, but, you know, there's so many of the, their songs that, you know, weren't major hits that I just critically prefer. You know, and, and I would like to go ahead and reiterate that this is my personal preferences, not, you know, uh, not to be taken as the gospel of pyromania. So yes, Rock of Ages, number eight, number seven, (sighs) rock, rock till you drop. Fantastic intro song. You know, like, uh, like I said, like we, we talked about earlier, hits all the, uh, you know, presses all the right buttons, um, uh, drives uh drives home you know the feeling that you're um you know you're you're in for a treat and uh up, and until and recently it uh it you know it became their uh, intro song again i remember when i saw them uh perform with kiss at the forum i think it was july the july the 8th 2014 somewhere around there it they absolutely just crushed it. They were fantastic. Uh the interesting thing that they were doing though is they would walk out to uh won't get fooled again by the who. Really? Yeah, and then uh and then uh and then go into let it go. Now, you know, let it go of course is the opening track to their earlier album High and Dry, but um I can honestly say that I do like their switch back to Rock Rock Till You Drop because it's it is a absolutely perfect opener. And uh, I know that number seven overall sounds very, very unfair, but you have to understand, uh, you know, when I group these together, you know, some of these were only tiered by minor differences, you know. uh, These were, you know, this this was a photo finish to be sure. Okay. Number six for me. Foolin', you know i love the way it's written i love how it's kind of like the archetype for the uh for you know a lot of songs that uh that would succeed it you know in different spots on the charts um it's just a very solid overall leopard song um you know i love the uh the a-based pedal riff and um you know the way that those uh those you know chords ring out and uh basically those palm muted chugs you know during the chorus just really just come out and grab you you know just uh you know it's a fantastic song you know and uh should i bring up that it's one of the cowbell songs on Pyro. Right. and That's i don't right. and i don't know if you picked up on this but I did. but of 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 the of their three hits that went gold uh, all of them had cowbell on them.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I actually did notice that. It's it's the cowbell
0: conspiracy. They should have put cowbell on a couple more tracks. I'm I'm just saying.
1: Yeah, I feel uh, that. I feel yeah.
0: That. All right, and and I know it's weird to have you know Rock of Ages and Fool and two of their best sellers in the bottom half, but you know it. Uh, well,
1: Rock of Ages is part of that cowbell trilogy, right there.
0: It is part of the cowbell trilogy. Yes, um, and it. Uh, and I, like I said, I know I'm gonna catch flack for having both of these in the bottom half, but uh, you know, it's all just right. it's just uh it's, all right. it's just how my ears were wired, you know. Yeah. All right, here we go. Number five, too late for love. Mm. Fan, you know, uh, underrated, absolutely underrated. It was one of the the singles that they released on that record, but I it just didn't really gain the traction of the big three. Um, you know, I love the you know. the synth synth intro and then, you know, just going into, you know, kind of Steve's, Steve's intro, just, uh, you know, I don't know why, but the way it, uh, the way it hits you, it, you know, it obviously in that, uh, in that minor scale, you know, it, uh, it already lets you know that, uh, you know, something somber, something, uh, something kind of bittersweet is about to strike you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, The way that Joe's uh, voice comes in to confirm that is just a thing of beauty to me. Yeah. All right. Uh, Number four. Billy's got a gun. Now, you know. um, Whew. You know, I, I know I already said a, a decent piece about Billy and, you know, the dark connotations about it. But, you know, r- r- going back to that dark motif, I guess, um, uh, my friends and I lovingly refer to it as dark cashmere. Now, you know, you're a Zeppelin fan, of course. You know, you know that when they play cat, when, uh, you know, Paige plays cashmere, it's kind of ascending on those middle uh, on those middle strings. You know, ba na na Mm -hmm. but you know, with Steve it's descending, you know, it starts, but you can totally hear the page influence in Steve's playing right there. You know, that's, I wouldn't say it's a Zeppelin ripoff, but you know, it's definitely a fantastic homage to, you know, one of the guys that he worships, like Steve's, you know, the thing that made Steve like take the position, take the, uh, stance that he did on rock was Zeppelin 1. He listened to Zeppelin 1 and he instantly became hooked. You know? And, uh, you know, Billy, you know, both both of the, uh, both of the, we'll just call them the long songs at the end of uh, the A-side and the B-side are fantastically influential on uh, what came after. And so, yeah. Uh, you know, that's my... Uh, justification for putting Billy at number four. Number three, coming under fire, Mm -hmm. criminally underrated, criminally underrated. You know, it was one of the, it was one of the um, singles that they released. I Mm -hmm. guess it just didn't gain any ground, but Joe himself has gone out on record saying, you know, I wish that one got a little more love and I do not fucking disagree with him there's something about that song that just, you know, kind of, you know, it's weird, uh, you know, that song because it, um, you know, it, for me, it's kind of like it succeeded where stage fright failed yeah, or not failed, but, you know, didn't quite fully recognize its potential. It is a heavy song. You know, you can tell by those inverted power chords, you know, mm-hmm. in the, in, in those intro riffs, but, um, it does still have kind of like that somber, you know, somber, uh, you know, theme about a woman scorned, you know? So it's kind of like Too Late for Love, Met Stage Fright, and like... Right. It's like the more effective version
1: of Too Late for Love, almost.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. and I, I still, I consider Too Late for Love very underrated as well, but I consider Coming Under Fire just their absolute diamond in the rough, you yeah. know, like it's there, you know, it's one of my absolute favorites that, you know, that I have to bring up the name for because, you know, uh, some, even some leopard fans who can name a few songs from every album are like, which one is that again? And, uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, Joe, I agree with you coming under fire. Absolutely. Fantastic. Whew. Number two, Die Hard the Hunter. You know, it's dark. It's brutal. You know, it's talking about a guy kind of, you know, returning from war and, you know, kind of, um, you know, dealing with his demons after what he's, uh, what he's um, uh, experienced. But on top of that, just the the sheer influence, you know, that you can hear from that song. Right. You know, uh I hear like the intro, you know, is definitely um, I I I can't name which uh, key that's in, but when I hear that intro, you know, I hear I hear a couple things from Metallica. I hear mm-hmm. I hear mm-hmm. notes of Fade to Black, and I yeah. hear one for sure, and not just in the intro riff, but you know the the whole helicopter thing. That might even go ba- as far back as Pink Floyd. Yeah, you know. You know that they use that helicopter well not the helicopter intro, but the but the guns and ammo intro in one, which is something that Leopard not only used in Pyro, but also in um in uh on Hysteria uh, for the intro for Gods of War. You know, which both predate and Justice for All, which came out mm-hmm. in eighty eight, Hysteria came out in eighty seven, and Pyro of course in January of eighty three january twentieth of eighty three give it a happy birthday everybody um, all right, and so yeah, uh not just Metallica, you know you yourself said that uh system of the down system of a down uh lifted uh, lifted a little bit from pyro which which song did you say that was again? right it was uh one of their albums um i don't know which
1: album it was, but in the documentary like I think their guitar player, bass player, was like, "Yeah, we uh, we put this intro on our album, and like afterwards, we kind of realized we like accidentally lifted it from the Duff Leopard intro, of yeah, <laughs> Die, Die Hard the Hunter." Hunter. Like, yeah, kinda... and
0: and if you and if you really want a bit of a mindfuck here, uh, listen to Die Hard the Hunter, and then listen to uh, the intro to Last Resort by Papa Roach. Mm. You know, maybe it's not a perfect bond, but you know, if you if you don't agree that it sounds really darn close, um, I think you need to get your get get your ears checked, honestly. You know. So yeah, Die Hard the Hunter number two. Which leads me to my favorite song on Pyromania, and coincidentally, my favorite song of all time. This is my absolute <laughs> favorite song. Uh Photograph, for, for, for those playing the home game. Like yeah. Now, you know, you're thinking, it was their most popular song on Pyro, but, you know, after you've put, gauged Foolin', and Rock of Ages so critically, why would you put it so high? And, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. You know, it's, uh, it wasn't um, easy, you know, putting some of these where they were, but for me... Um, Photograph is actually the first Def Leppard song that I can remember. You know, first time, to- like, three or four years old, I remember hearing it on the radio. Not KLOS, you know, probably, but it was, you know, the first song that I cognizantly can remember hearing from this band. And, um, you know, with probably Foolin being a close second. I-, I didn't realize Pour Some Sugar on me was... Uh, Def Leppard until probably a couple years after I had been listening to the others, you know. Uh, funnily enough. Kids are stupid, you know. Just just know that. To all, to all you kids listening out there, uh, pardon my French for all the stuff we said before, but you guys are stupid, you know. Anyways, photograph. You know, it's just perfect from start to finish. I know you ranked it 10 out of 10. Um, you know, from from that uh from that feedback on the A when they plug in the amp to uh to those E variations that's the one thing i fucking love about photograph you know you got uh you got Phil playing one version of E or i think that's Phil and then you got Steve just playing the open low E and the way that they blend you know just makes it sound absolutely fat you know and the way that they intertwine, just absolutely brilliant. You know, um, I love the, uh, I love the, uh, way that they, um, you know, kind of arpeggiate those certain notes in the chorus when you got the power chords underneath, it is the epitome, in my opinion, of that dual guitar attack that we've talked about on pyro, you know? And I think that's the one that, uh, that, um, exemplifies it the best. You know, it's one of Phil's best solos. Personally, I would actually say that Phil's best solo is probably Foolin'. But, uh, you know, I do like the solo on Photograph. And, um, Phil and Steve's ride out, if you get a chance to kind of listen to what he does there. You know, absolute mastery. You know, uh, just, you know, he hits every note that he wants to hit. He hits every note that you want to hear, you know. And, uh, like I said, the only way that photograph could be a more perfect song, I know I'm breaking grammar here, a more perfect song is, uh, if they didn't fade it out and just, uh, cut it off like they do on the extended version. If you ever get a chance, please listen to the extended version online. You know, I, I know it's an extra 10 seconds, but you know, 10 seconds of Steve noodling is 10 seconds well spent, you That's know? right. And, uh, yeah, basically photograph is a you know is is my pick for you know my favorite song of all time my favorite song on this album and personally a song that not only you know Def Leppard hold near and dear to their hearts but it's still their final encore song to this day and has been since the hysteria tour oh yeah
1: well those are great thoughts on the album here any final thoughts on the album
0: like kind of like influence wise just anything you want to say absolutely um well i would say this you know with the uh with uh pyro exploding the way that it did it it ended up selling about seven million copies um you know at the time which you know is nothing to sneeze at you know that's seven times platinum and uh with consequent albums releasing, you know, obviously the older albums get a little bit of a boost, so it finally achieved a diamond status um a handful of years ago. Um, you know, it is it, it it's uh its impact is undeniable, you know. As part of one of those big 3 that we discussed very early in the podcast. You might have to rewind to to um to hear about that one, you know. It um it kind of gave a uh Kind of like a cookie cutter um, formula for all the uh, Sunset Strip bands to fit into in a way. Like if you listen to any Sunset Strip band that formed after 1983, they're going to be an amalgamation of Crew, Quiet Riot, and Pyro. And more often than not, in those, if you listen to the, to, to the production, they're going to be leaning more Pyro than the other two. Like, it's, it's nearly undeniable. And, uh, you know, so that, that, that album basically uh, defined how rock was going to be until the advent of grunge, which we're not sure about the cutoff point there. Let's just call it 1992, to be safe. So this, this album, released in early 1993... You know, defined rock for nearly a decade, and was, you know, and it um, kind of, you know, it uh, it's withstood the test of time, despite sounding a little dated because of the uh, uh, because of the tracks. You know, it, it uh, you know it showed people you know how pure uh, music can be in its simplest form. And you know, even though something might sound simple, just the effort and the time that something that could define a generation may take. You know, it um, it's it's truly a you know one of the uh, one of the, in my opinion, one of the m- marvels of the of uh, modern music. And um, it's uh, it's a little sad that it's kind of uh, kind of been lost in the landslide of of great albums as the years go by. It's you know it's not very often that you kind of just forget about a an album that sold 10 million copies here in the states, mm-hmm. and um, especially when you think about the albums consequently that draw their influence in some way either cognizantly or, or uh, passively through this record. And, uh, you know, and even, and even uh, you know, popular critics have agreed. You know, uh, I, I don't remember how long ago it was. It might have been like 2006 or something, but Rolling Stone ranked this in the top 500 albums of all time, above its uh, successor, Hysteria, which was considered, you know, Kind of a victim of the success of this album. So it gained, you know, it made it into the mid 300s out of 500 best albums of all time simply on the fact that it was a trendsetter. It was a paradigm. It was, it was an absolute um, musical treasure. And, uh, you know, I think upon release, I don't, I don't, I, I barely believe that the boys themselves really knew what they had done when they, when they put it together. Yeah, definitely. dude. I feel that
1: let's wrap this up. Um, I have a couple extra questions for you here. These are fast paced questions that are meant to be kind of like stream of consciousness. So don't think too much about them. Just answer them. Um, sure. Fire bro. Have you ever listened to this album under the influence?
0: A handful of times, yes.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, If this album were a beer, what would it be?
0: Firestone Walker 805.
1: I'm with it. Uh, Would you get intimate to this album?
0: That's... to fool in.
1: Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Uh, Are numbers created or discovered? Oh, uh. <laughs> created I'm thinking man that's the minority opinion but I like it better does a man with one lung get more high or less high off of one bong rip say again does a
0: man with one lung get more high or less high off of one bong rip I would say more so because, uh, you know, it's a higher concentration, I would think, with one lung. More in one lung. I dig it.
1: Does (laughs) a straw have one hole or two holes? I think it's a single hole because it's a cylinder. It goes through. For sure. All right, that's my shit. That's it, man. I'm going to read you your buzzwords for this week. Your buzzwords were, one, mentioned poison you did not do. Use an onomatopoeia. You did. Uh, Talk about your middle school music taste. You did not do. Mention Boston. You did. Name a specific guitar or bass. You did. (laughs) Gibson, please give us a call. (laughs) Gibson, what's up? Uh, Let me advise you on your Epiphone line. Anything, literally. Uh, Mention a band you used to be in. You did. Refer to an album made post 1990 as a record you did not do. Uh, use the phrase "ahead of its time" you did not do. Recite lyrics you did. Mention Led Zeppelin you did. Uh, say the word "rah" you did. Say the word "drink." I feel like you did.
0: Did I? I didn't. Well, if I didn't, here, here's to all y'all. Drink. So this is the one.
1: Mention a part of a drum kit you definitely did. Uh, yeah. Uh tell a drinking story you did. Uh describe a sound as warm. I marked you for that. Did you do that though?
0: You really led me into did it. I, yes. Okay. yes you I did. I did.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay, I got you for that.
0: Mention a music video you did. I sure did. They got great ones. Give them a look, people. Here's the thing. I don't know how long this episode's going to eventually be, but just know that The entirety of Pyromania is about 45 minutes. You guys owe yourself that 45 minutes to acquaint yourself with this album.
1: That's right. Name a specific studio you did. Whistlered. yeah. Name a specific amplifier you did. I did a (laughs) handful of times. Say Vintage you did not do.
0: Really? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And finally, mention one of the big four metal bands you did.
0: Which I did do.
1: That's it, man. That's the fucking shit for this week. And we are done, though.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, it was a pleasure uh, being here to, uh, you know, kind of convey just how much I love this album. And uh, hopefully a little bit of my passion and my love for this album is rubbed off onto you. Make sure to give uh, Def Leppard a look in their many uh, uh, incarnations. And, um, yeah, just... uh, Spread the love. Stay hydrated.
1: (laughs) That's right. We'll see you guys next week. I have no idea who we're going to be talking to next week, but we'll figure it out soon enough. All right. See you, folks. Adios. Stay safe. Have a good one. Bye.
0: This has been a Redefining Records production.